We'll go ahead and call the meeting to order. Ronnie, can we get a roll call? Trustee Banerjee. Here. Trustee Bouquet. Here. Trustee Blue. Trustee Dong. Here. Trustee Esteen. Here. Trustee Fox. Here. Trustee Jensen. Here. Trustee Splendoria. Here. Trustee Blue, you have your mic off now. Uh, do you want to stay here, please? Yes, present. Excellent. Thank you. We do have a quorum. Okay, thank you very much, Rana. I uh, do know that there's public comment. So are uh, the public comment each speaker this evening will have uh, two minutes. So is Esther Karp uh, present? Esther, go yeah, ahead. And I'm here. Very good. You have two minutes. Thank you. All right. Um, good evening, Board of Trustees. My name is Esther Carr. I'm a registered nurse in the emergency room department at Alameda Hospital. I have worked there for 20 years. Alameda is also where I live, and it is my community. I'm a staff nurse three, professional performance committee chair. I'm on the bargaining team and also a nurse rep for CNA, which is um, California Nurses Association. DNA represents about 350 nurses between Alameda and San Leandro Hospital. First of all, I would like to thank all of you for joining the interim board of trustees and dedicating your time and your expertise to this worthy but dysfunctional public hospital system. I feel hope for the first time in two years. My hope is that you listen to the frontline staff when examining the issues and not just taking a C-suite perspective and that patients always, always, always come first. I hope for transparency, accountability, and that you demonstrate a willingness to work with labor and the community. Second is an urgent issue um, regarding safe staffing levels at our hospitals during this COVID-19 surge. I believe that you all received the letter that I sent to Janet McGinnis, our chief nurse executive and Ronica Shelton, Vice President of Patient Care Services at Alameda Hospital. I would like to reiterate that accepting CDPH's emergency waiver will put patients and nurses' lives at risk. We vehemently oppose Alameda Health System applying for this waiver. We serve notice that in the event a registered nurse is forced to accept an unsafe assignment despite objection, the nurse does not accept liability for negative patient outcomes up to and including death. We ask that you, the Board of Trustees, stand with the workers to ensure that the staffing standards are at the highest level to keep our community and patients safe. Thirdly, today, in the midst of yet another dangerous surge in the COVID-19 cases, our nurses are still without a, fir a fair contract, a contract that honors the tireless contributions to the community and this healthcare system. Nurses that have gone into work day in and day out during this unprecedented pandemic without the respect and dignity of having a fair contract in place. Shame on Alameda healthcare system. My colleagues and I are beyond frustrated and demoralized. It is our hope that you, the Board of Trustees, recognize the urgency in recognizing this situation by directing the Alameda Health System Management to come to the table and negotiate fairly at once. Thank, Thank you, Esther. That's time. Thank you very much. Uh, Lucy Colvin. 
Hello. Um, it's Hello. Good to be with you again, uh, many of you, and very good to meet uh, new folks on the board. Um, I'm Lucy Colvin. I've been a therapist with the Intensive Outpatient Program at Fairmont Campus for the past 21 years. For over 25 years, our program at the Highland and Fairmont campuses has served the most chronic people with persistent mental health problems. Schizophrenia, bipolar disorder, major depression, PTSD. Our safety net. We're medical and therapeutic program that serves two to 300 patients. To keep them out of the hospitals, to keep them out of jails, not suiciding. And we need to stay open. Besides psychiatrists and nurses who treat and track medical and psychiatric issues, we have a lot of specialized psychiatric and therapeutic groups that meet the complex needs of the population that uh, licensed clinicians serve. We're here today uh, because for the last year and a half, our, threatened, our program has been threatened with closure. And we were just told last month that it is going to close and that they're going to transition our patients to county facilities, full service partnerships. But I want you to know that we are the referral support, uh, resource for all of these partnerships, caseworkers, psychiatrists, um, wellness centers, access. They refer to us because we're the program that knows how to serve the complex needs of this population. And we've been working very hard during COVID with many, many telegroups and on-site visits. And we want you to know that they've decided to close us anyway. Um, and it's going to cause a lot of pain and suffering for our clients and a lot of money for the county. We're thankful to talk to you and we'd appreciate your assistance to keep our vital program open and not pit our patients' needs against those with less vital uh, chronic needs because they want to use our staff to serve a less chronic population and keep and put our patients back out on the streets. And so they're using information and data that is not correct. We work very hard. They have data that shows 10, that we're working 10 times less than we are that they're showing you. But we can show you that we're, we're working harder than ever during COVID, keeping our patients as stable as possible. And we're really looking forward with you to keep our pro working with you to keep our program open and vital and actually expand our services because we think we could serve more people who have these severe needs as well as those with less severe needs. Thank you, Ms. Colvin. Thank you. That's time. Thank you. Uh, Lee Davis. Thank you. My name is Lee Davis, and I'm the chair of the Alameda County Mental Health Advisory Board. Um, nice to meet you, Board of uh, Trustees. Um, I'm here to urge you not to close the Fairmont Hospital IOP program. Um, the Mental Health Advisory Board has recommended to the Board of Supervisors they actually expand this program. Uh, the kind of structure that this kind of programming can offer is unlike anything else that exists in the system. Um, I speak from personal experience of being somebody with bipolar disorder who has experienced the need to have that kind of programming that has helped me maintain my stability. And I have visited the Fairmont Hospital campus and not only were 
the staff professional and competent, but also is a warm and welcoming place to be. And this is an incredibly vulnerable set of population. And this is an incredibly vulnerable time in our history to somehow close this place. Many of the people that are part of this program have been part of this program for years and years, and it has helped them maintain their stability. And to close it would be short-sighted it's not only would cause emotional harm to people, but it's uh, something that helps decrease recidivism. It's, it's just there's a link is uh, inextricably there where if people have the services they need, they can stay stable, they can remain in the community as, instead of cycling in and out of the ER and other expensive and uh, unideal places like Santa Rita um, Jail and other uh, places like that where it's not only expensive but it's also just a huge huge I just can't say enough that this kind of programming since it exists to cut it out now would be hard to recreate and it's just this is a moment that's really important so I, I think my time may be up but thank you very much. Is my time not up? Well, thank you. Yes, your time is up. Thank okay. you. Sorry about that. Yeah. Uh, Craig Metz. Hi. Um, thank you so much. Yeah, I'm Craig Metz. I'm a therapist with our um, intensive outpatient program, IOP at Fairmont Hospital. Um, I first just want to thank you so much for joining this board. Um, we need you to make AHS work because AHS is one of the ways that we care for each other here in Alameda County and so it's so important. Um, and I know that is all of our hope to move forward into a more functional hospital system. Um, and I have a lot of confidence that you guys can do it. So thank you. Um, so it is our mission at AHS to care for the most vulnerable. And our clients at IOP that have been entrusted into our care are some of the most vulnerable in any sense that you can think of. Yet, since our IOP clinic has been moved into the ambulatory department from our previous home in psychiatry, leadership at ambulatory has told us that they do not believe that those with a severe and persistent illness that we care for are their responsibility. This is unconscionable to us. Let us be clear, there is nowhere else in our county for our clients to go. IOP is the level of care that is between inpatient on the one side and case management and wellness centers on the other. Case management is not treatment, and wellness centers are not appropriate for clients with acute symptoms such as ours. Without IOP, our clients end up in the psych hospitals, in the ER, in the courts and jails, dealing with the police, or on the streets homeless. Our clients represent some of the highest users of services in our county, but once they start in an IOP program, their inpatient hospitalizations drop by 70% per year. We just are not prepared to let our clients get dropped from care. Please, as soon as you are able to, make sure that the leadership of AHS commits to preserving AHS's intensive outpatient program. Thank you. Thank you very much, Mr. Uh, uh, our next speaker is Jordan Pallott. Hi, can you hear me okay? We can, thank you very much. Go ahead, you have two minutes. All right, thanks. Uh, hi, my name is Jordan. I am also a staff member at the Fairmont IOP. 
been working there for about four years. Um, prior to that, I used to work at uh, Benita House Residential Treatment uh, for folks with uh, dual diagnosis, as well as I was an intern at uh, Berkeley Creative Wellness Center, so it was one of the wellness centers. Um, one of the things, and just to give a little bit of context, is you know we were one of the things we we're kind of excited by was the possibility of expanding our services uh, to to be able to serve more folks through at, at AHS, um, and we were definitely forward to uh, potentially adding a wellness center as a reverse services and be able to have a uh, a kind of cross the board level of care. Um, and then, you know, I just can't stress. Uh, how uh, frustrating and, cult and and kind of taxing it has been over the recent few months uh, when it has become more and more likely that they're going to close IOP uh, or they're attempting to close IOP and uh, not having that level of service available. Um, as someone who worked at the Wellness Center, uh, you know, it is a wonderful service for folks who uh, have persistent mental illness but who are uh, consistently stable and have access to transportation um, and can uh, kind of be in the community. Uh, have, however, many of our referrals of the Wellness Center uh, came from uh, IP levels of service, either uh, Highland or uh, Laheim or uh, Herrick. And one of the things at the Wellness Center is I just wanted to note is that actually our census at the Berkeley Wellness Center drastically decreased uh, once Laheim, uh, the county decided that they were no longer going to provide IOP services for Medi-Cal clients. Uh, and uh, because we didn't have that kind of uh, safety net, a middle zone between uh, psychiatric hospitalization, John George, and the wellness at a level, uh, there was no transition that really a lot of our clients kind of uh, fell into the void at that time. Uh, so I just want to really emphasize the importance of IOP uh, within the different levels of care. Uh, and uh, this whole process has been really stressful on top of all of the trying to hold our clients during COVID. Uh, and so we're really hoping for some resolution, some commitment uh, of uh, keeping IOP. And uh, once that commitment's made, uh, it'll be uh, much easier, I feel like, to, to move forward to uh, finding solutions to incorporating other levels of care and incorporating more services, mental health services, uh, uh, for the whole community. Uh, so okay. thank you very much, and I really look forward to us uh, working together. Okay, thank you very much for your uh, comments. Our next speaker is uh, Amy Tomzak. Good evening, Board of Trustees. My name is Amy Tomzak. I work as a group therapist in Fairmont Hospital's IOP program. Thank you for your time and for your service on the board. I want to tell you about one of our patients. This small mobile home and suffers from medical issues, plus kept her locked inside her own mind fearful of others, and having a history of multiple psychiatric hospitalizations. When she started our program, she was guarded and paranoid, sitting in groups and refusing to speak, stating she had no friends and didn't want any. But she month after month, and as she started to feel safer in our community and stabilized on her medications, she began to talk about some of her favorite 
Collins from the 60s, and her passion for sports and progressive politics. Now, last week, in our teletherapy group was able to say she was lonely and wanted her peers to reach out to her by phone. This is progress. This is hope. This is why I love my work, serving our most vulnerable, severely mentally ill clients. For the past year and a half, our program has been under threats of reductions and closure by the AHS administration who have not shown any support or interest in a program that is a lifeline, helping these patients stabilize and manage their chronically debilitating symptoms. There is no other place in the county for these patients. The devaluing and lack of support has created high levels of ongoing stress for our staff who feel discouraged and frustrated that during a pandemic, there has been such a lack of support for a program that serves as a vital lifeline for our SMI patients in the county. We are requesting a Bielinson hearing and we welcome you to reach out to us to find out more about what we do. Please make sure AHS leadership commits to keeping the IOP open. Thank you so much. Hi, is it my turn? Uh, my name is Martha Bader. I'm also a therapist. Can you guys hear me? Okay, good. I'm a therapist at the IOP as well. Um, and you might be wondering, why are we all here tonight? We're on the agenda next meeting. Um, it's that urgent. Uh, the, our leadership like moved in between boards of trustees to announce they were going to close us. We know they're committed to doing that. And that's why we need your attention and potentially intervention right away. Um, what I want to discuss just briefly is, and I'm happy to provide more information, data research that we've done, is about the, um, the wrongheadedness of this from a financial point of view, as well as an ethical and clinical point of view. Um, our, our program is funded 100% pretty much by Medicare. We do get a Medi-Cal copay, but we tend to get it from the state. This is money that doesn't actually cost the county anything which they will have to spend if our client census goes back to the county. Um, but more to the point, that population will be homeless. Many of them have been homeless. They stabilize in our program. They are severely mentally ill. These are huge priorities for the county. It makes no sense to close the one and only program that stabilizes this extremely acute population. So I am hoping that that makes sense to you. But financially, our program was stable for 25 years. A few years ago, at AHS's request, we started serving less acute population, but they gave us no additional staff or money. Uh, but our staff was siphoned off. And that, that money never came to us. We were never reimbursed for years. We had hundreds of thousands of unpaid billings um, for that program. That population often doesn't show up. Um, there's been a lot of reasons why that program was hemorrhaging money for our program. And it was during that period of time that a snapshot of our finances were taken and presented to us. And we were told well, we're not profitable after being profitable for two decades. There is such a confusion, whether it's intentional or not, I have no idea, but we have seen numbers that make us crazy, like that, that do not match our internal records of our, our finances. Like for instance, we were told that we were going to have to pay a 42%, uh, uh, 
internal admin charge for using AHSs, like, you know, admin services. And then, like, a few months ago, when they were really trying to bear it down on us, they said now the admin charge was going to be 160% our actual budget. That makes no sense. Um, anyway, I'm hoping that some of these numbers get your attention. Uh, this is not a normal situation. We really need your help and support uh, in any way possible to prevent the closure of this program and putting these patients back out on the street. Thank you. Who's next? <laughs> Hi, can you hear me? Hi, 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 board. Um, thank you so much for having us. Uh, my name is Parisa Farohi. I'm also an IOP therapist. I am a case caring therapist. I started um, to work at IOP 19 years ago, actually this month. Um, I started working in the PHP part of our program. So um, folks who were coming out of John George and PES would come straight to us and they would get um, stabilized, their days would get reduced, and then they would go to wellness centers. So we would refer them to wellness centers and they would try to stay stable in the community in the wellness center. And when they decompensated, they would come back to us. So the thought of us not being in the middle is just mind blowing for a therapist who's been carrying this caseload and working with this population for almost 20 years. As a social worker, this is my um, mission to advocate on behalf of my clients. Um, so I am also the um, outreach coordinator for John George, um, PES and John George, where I go to John George and I interview patients and I engage them in our program. Um, I, um, if they have Medi-Cal, Medicare, other insurances, try to get them to come to our program. Um, and um, it's been amazing for me. The reason I've been there for almost 20 years and I haven't been burned out is because our program works. I see them when they're in the hospital at their lowest point, wanting to kill themselves, and they come to us and we don't go to the hospital as much. Some not for years. I'm going to give you an example. I have a picture of a client. Um, we're going to call her um, patient C. So I um, met her at PES. She was in a robe crying on the floor saying that, please, somebody help me get, um, you know, she, she took care of her appearance very, very much. She was in PES, PES because she was um, trying to kill herself. Um, and I engaged her in our program and she came to our program. She um, started, um, she, this is a woman, an African-American woman in her 60s, um, diagnosis of bipolar, lots of trauma, uh, substance abuse, depression, wanting to kill herself. She got into our DBT program. She made a community. She did not go back to the hospital for two years. And I have a picture of this woman in front of me and I look at her every time I get burned out. This is the reason I work here, because I want to help people. So please keep IOP open. Thank you. Okay, thank you very much for your uh, comments. Our next speaker is Craig Kleinman. Okay, can, can you hear me? Yes. 
Okay, great. Uh, my name is Craig Clayman. I've been a therapist here at Fairmont for about eight years. Uh, I have been licensed as a therapist for 34 years. I spent 17 years as a department administrator of addiction medicine and chronic pain program with Kaiser Permanente. In 1998, I was part of a team that developed the Historic Labor Union Partnership and redesigned the behavior medicine programs at Kaiser Permanente in the Southern California region. The reason I'm saying this is that I have witnessed an administration here who has not been willing to form a partnership with us. They have been deceitful in their interactions, changing the truth to fit to fit their own agenda. There is no partnership here and whatsoever. In fact, I would even call this a hostile environment, reporting to leaderships that have been trying to close us for over a year and a half. We are exhausted. They were successful in dismantling the vibrant program at the Highland Hospital, the Highland IOP. I used to do groups there. Um, the groups with the most amazing, resilient men and women of color who survived crack and meth addictions, alcoholism, homelessness, depression, schizophrenia, and suicide attempts. They were just trying to stay healthy and stay connected. I watched how their census went from 50 a day to 15 a day before the COVID-19. Where are these people now and why are we not talking about them? What we're asking, please stop this political nightmare and let administration know that you care about serving this population. Keep us open and bring back the vibrant intensive outpatient program that once was Highland Hospital. Thank you. Thank you very much. Our next uh, speaker is Alicia Caldwell. Uh, hi, can you hear me all right? Yes, we can. Go ahead. Okay, thanks for having us. I appreciate it. And while I work for Fairmont, I should say that I, I feel like I speak for both Highland and Fairmont as we are the IOP program of AHS. But anyway, I'm a licensed clinical social worker. I've been here for about three years. And I feel like actually one of my vantage points is that I'm a relatively new employee. Prior to AHS, I've worked in several other IOPs, intensive outpatient programs in both Southern California and San Francisco. And I've been extremely lucky in that every IOP I've worked for has actually been quite strong and the clients have benefited from high quality services. And at the same time, this program is hands down the best IOP I've worked for. And that really says a lot. While many would acknowledge the dedication and heart that's been invested into our program over the years, what I actually see as our program's main strength is the nimbleness of the staff to meet the clients where they are and to create modalities and therapeutic opportunities within our program. And, you know, when it's deemed safe to visit, if any of you want to visit, you would be completely welcome. I've been in the field for nearly 30 years and I'm totally blown away by the program. These are not just staff that are comfortable in their role or afraid of change. These are staff that really embrace change and are constantly innovating different modalities and treatment opportunities as a way to meet the therapeutic needs of our clients. These are staff that know that they are the safety net between the patients and John George and often homelessness. So there is passion, but it's not passion for themselves. 
It's passion for serving and protecting our county's most vulnerable. And at AHS, within the Behavioral Health Department, I've worked with those with mild mental health symptoms who have beacon insurance, and I've worked with those with more severe mental health symptoms who take Medi-Medi, and both populations truly deserve support. And we want those with mild symptoms with beacon insurance to get support. And so we are supporting those patients. And yet we're really concerned because there's been talk about taking services away from those with severe symptoms in favor for serving those with more mild symptoms. And if you have beacon insurance in addition to coming here, you can come to a variety of places. But with MediMedi, for those with severe mental health symptoms, this IOP program is the only program in the county. For the most vulnerable clients, this is the only safety net. And so we just truly appreciate your time and we just implore you to maintain the safety net for the sake of the county's most vulnerable residents. Thank okay. you. Thank you very much. Uh, Ariana Casanova. Hi, good evening. Ariana Casanova, SEIU 10 to 1 field rep. I have the privilege of working with this amazing team of IOP workers who do an amazing job day in and day out. If you ever get a chance, trustees, I'm inviting you for them to come and see their program. They serve a very special group of individuals in our community. And so I'm here today to ask you to please keep IOP open and to also acknowledge that we are totally supportive of expanding and serving mild to moderate, we don't want to say either or, we would like both to be served, but do not take away from this population to serve another population. We should be talking about how can we make this affordable and reachable to all these populations and serve more using the experience and the model that these talented um, workers have been doing for 25 years. I also ask that we support a balance in hearing with the Board of Supervisors in the interim so that we could discuss and look at all these discrepancies that have been occurring with their budget, with their patient utilization numbers. There's definitely issues that we were working with um, that we need to clarify and fix in the coming weeks, months to address some of the concerns that the workers have raised today. And so I just ask you all trustees as your first meeting to please um, feel free to reach out to us, to meet with us, ask us questions, and really consider holding this public hearing and asking the Board of Supervisors to support that and look into what this means for AHS and what this means to Alameda County. Thank you for your time. Thank you very much. Uh, our next speaker is uh, Valerie Lim. Hi, good evening. Can you hear me all right? Yes. Thank you for um, being here and listening. My name is Valerie. I work. I'm here. I work at Highland Hospital, um, and I am a co-chair of our Medical Surgical Unit Based Council and our nine ACT Patient Care Experience Committee. Um, I'm a staff nurse too, and I've been there for about three years. We are here today to say, please um, do not take away, do not eliminate safe staffing matrices. We need safe staffing, make safe staffing ratios with respect to both our CNAs and our sitter patients. We need this 
staffing matrix to state that the floor CNAs are to be independent and irrespective of our sitter patient requirement numbers. For example, as a menstrual nurse, I have five patients. As the RN, I'm responsible for giving my sitter their due breaks, which is 1.5 hours for each sitter that I have of the 12.5 hours of my shift. And while I'm doing that, relieving my sitter, my four other patients unfortunately aren't able to get the timely, good quality care that they deserve. While I'm relieving sitters, they need pain. The other pain. The other patient needs pain medication. The other patient needs to go to the restroom. One patient needs their discharge medications to be delivered and picked up because their ride is downstairs, um, and that is only a portion of the, all the tasks that needs to be completed at any given moment for any given nurse. Recently, we had five sitter patients on our floor without any floor CNA assistance. Patient safety is at risk. Patients are at high risk of falling and injuring themselves. Having floor CNAs to assist with patient daily care needs such as toileting, feeding, and fall prevention um, and sitter reliefs would provide that safety for the patients. And it will allow RNs to adequately safely provide excellent patient care that allows us to uphold our AHS mission and values. So thank you again for um, listening and uh, we look forward to working with you to ensure our patients get the care that they deserve and that our coworkers are in the working conditions that will help us deliver that care in order to you know, care, teach and serve everybody. Oliver. Thank you, Ms. Lim. Uh, the next speaker is uh, John Pearson. Good evening, everyone, uh, and new trustees. Welcome. Uh, we're looking forward to working with you. Uh, we've just been through a strike because of the previous board of trustees and the current AHS administration. Uh, the relationship got so strained uh, and unfair labor practices were committed. We're looking forward to a new relationship with you and to a county governance change. I'm here tonight to urge you uh, to settle the contract with SEIU 10 to 1. We represent over 3,000 workers, the bulk of the AHS workforce. AHS still has some of the takeaways that we went on strike over on the table, including increased health care costs for workers that are working through the middle of a pandemic, eliminating safe staffing, staffing matrices uh, that are in the co current contract for our nurses, clerks, uh, CNAs, and ED techs, and also a wage freeze uh, for workers that are dealing with increasing cost of living. Um, I'd also uh, like to thank you for uh, in advance for the service that you're going to provide. Um, these are difficult times for all of us, and I know they are for you, and you'll be faced with lots of difficult decisions. One of the clear mistakes that this administration has made and the previous board has made is forgetting that we're a public health care system and acting as if we're a private corporation. We don't have a choice whether or not we have to take care of the public. That's our duty, um, and we shouldn't forget to do it. You're hearing from lots and lots of my coworkers who are in the, uh, the outpatient psych clinic tonight, uh, reminding you that AHS uh, shouldn't just be dropping, closing this program. We're responsible for taking care of these patients, and they're going to end up in the ER and in John George uh, if they don't have this program to attend. It's gonna be a big burden on us, a burden on the county. Uh, please don't close that program and hold the violence in hearing. Uh, also, please settle our contract. Thank you, and have a good night. Okay, thank you very much. Uh, Stacy Lee. Good evening. 
everyone. Um, I'm Stacy Lee. I'm on the general unit bargaining team with SEIU 10 to 1. I'm here to please emphasize with our new board of trustees that employees in our union need a contract with AHS now. We need a strong contract for our patients and staff to get adequate ventilation in our older buildings so that no one has to breathe toxic smoke every year during fire season. We also need a strong contract with members so members and managers can understand expectations and work together with clearly written information. Those are just a couple of the reasons, but as everyone is aware, we are in the middle of a surge and we need to prioritize patient care as a number one goal. Right now, we do not have adequate staffing to do that in some units and some members of our bargaining team, unfortunately, have not been released during bargaining meetings. And for the members who are released during bargaining, it puts a strain on our their team members, and ultimately on patient care. It's already been a year of negotiations, and we cannot let this drag on unnecessarily. We ask that you exercise your power as a new board of trustees to resolve this contract so that each and every one of us can be fully available to care for our patients during this time. Thank you so much for your time. Thank you very much, uh, Ms. Lee. Uh, that uh, covers all of the speakers on public comment, so we'll move the other items on the agenda. Uh, our first uh, item is an opportunity for the trustees to introduce themselves. So, uh, Trustee Banerjee, uh, we'll go ahead and start with you. Good evening, everyone. Um, my, I'm Kinkini Banerjee, and I've been on the board since 2014. I'm a resident of San Leandro, and I joined the board. Um, I've um, my background has been in public health policy and advocacy, as well as healthcare uh, uh, practice. Um, and um, after being in the public health policy advocacy field for 20 years, I've now worked um, in philanthropy for the Jan Zuckerberg Initiative, working in the education sector. I, um, I joined the board because I believe the mission of AHS, and I uh, am so honored to be part of this board because of the amazing care that our staff is able to provide the AHS family. Our residents deserve it, and we are um, so thankful um, to, the, to the many across all of our facilities that uh, provide compassionate Okay, thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Uh, Trustee Bouquet. Good evening, everyone. My name is Taft Bouquet. Uh, I'm also I'm an Oakland resident. I'm entering my 13th year as the Division Chief of Gastroenterology and Hepatology here. I practice here at Highland and most recently at Alameda Hospital, and we're in strategic planning to launch our division ultimately at San Leandro Hospital as well. Uh, during my tenure here, over my 13 years, I've done a number of different roles apart from my clinical and division chief work. I was the chief of staff for the uh, Highland medical staff for a couple of years. I was a past chief of staff as well. And uh, three years ago, I uh, joined this board of trustees uh, uh, trying to exemplify my commitment to this place. Uh, I've been the chair of the quality committee of the board for the past three years. And about two years ago, I joined the finance committee. Um, uh, it's in part of my board work that I express my commitment to this place because it's hard stuff. Perhaps most importantly, I'm a patient here at, 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 uh, in this system. 
uh, I identify the Highland Primary Care Clinic as my medical home. And uh, uh, so I'm a patient here, I'm a doc here, and, and, and thank you for uh, the supervisors for allowing me to continue on as a, as, a, as a trustee here. It's my honor to work here, and I'm deeply committed to our noble mission of service to those who need it most and to our education mission, of course. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Buchanan. Trustee Blue. Oh, you'll need, we can't hear you, Louisa. Okay. I don't know oh. why, but hang on. Let me, um. No, no, you're good now. We can hear you now. Oh, okay. Oh, hold on. It's, it went out again. Ready. I'm going to use a cell phone now since my audio doesn't work. But my name is Louisa Blue. I have been a resident of Alameda County out of Hayward, California for over 30 years. A little bit of my background is I am a former registered. Louisa, we're. Hello? 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 Can you guys hear me now? Uh, perfect. Okay. Um, Louisa Blue, a resident of Alameda County out of Hayward, California, for over 30 years. I have a healthcare background. I was a registered nurse at the San Francisco General in the intensive care unit. And I was there at the very beginning of the, at very beginning of the, of the uh, AIDS epidemic before HIV was discovered. So I look forward to working uh, with the members of this trustee, uh, our workers at the healthcare facilities, uh, because we are all charged with making sure that we provide the best care possible to the residents of Alameda County. We are the last uh, healthcare system, right, in terms of taking in people who walk in through those doors, regardless of what their insurance status is, their immigration status is, we take the sickest of the sick. And I feel very strongly about that, having worked at a county facility. Um, a little, little bit more about me is that I was an international executive vice president of the Service Employees International Union,
issues, some of the issues that uh, we are currently facing. And I am sorry about this thing, but I don't know what else to do. Thank you. Okay. Thank you, Trustee Blue. Uh, Trustee Don. Hi, everyone. I'm Jeanette Dong, and I want to thank you all for being here tonight and sharing your messages. Uh, I Just the two sentences about me. I'm uh, born and raised in Oakland, spent a lot of time in New York, and um, I currently am the Director of Recreation and Human Services for the City of San Leandro. Previous to that, I was Chief of Staff to Supervisor Wilma Chan and a former Associate Vice Chancellor for workforce development and advancement for Peralta Colleges. Uh, I spent four years as a public member of the Board of Registered Nursing, appointed by three assembly speakers. Um, I enjoyed my time there and I, I certainly learned a lot. And I'm hoping to segue all my experiences uh, with government, philanthropy, labor, and healthcare social services to benefit the Alameda Health System. I do want to say uh, one thing that my time here, I'm hoping to achieve a couple of things. One, to resolve the labor dispute and settle the contract, number one. Number two, to, re to develop positive relationships with labor and our greater community, including the Board of Supervisors. And lastly, I'm here because I'm committed to the workers, to the patients, and to our larger community. And I want to reposition Alameda Health System as a truly a public hospital system. Thank you. Thank you, Trustee Dong. Uh, Trustee Esteen. Hey, my name is Jennifer Esteen, and I am a psychiatric registered nurse. I also, uh, like Louisa, uh, have worked at San Francisco General for the last 10 years and am very happy to serve uh, as a public health nurse and a psychiatric nurse. And um, recently, I live in Alameda County in unincorporated Ashland, which is south of San Leandro, but north of Hayward. Um, and as a resident of unincorporated Ashland, I hope to bring uh, conscientiousness to the Board of Trustees about those of us in our community who have been underrepresented and underserved. And as such, Alameda Health System is, uh, you know, like Louisa said, it's really the, the place of last resort. And being that Highland Hospital is the flagship level one trauma center in Alameda County, we should be the best hospital in Alameda County. So I'm hoping that as a trustee, that I can help to raise the standard of care to put patients first always and to do that from every single level, whether it's the level of the Board of Trustees, the C-suite, the staff delivering care every single day, we all have to work together. So that is the mm -hmm. philosophy that I live with. And um, I'm hoping that we can serve everyone equally and uh, erase the disparity about, you know, in my community, um, in unincorporated Alameda County and make everyone equally uh, have good care to access. Thanks. Thank you, Trustee Fox. My name is Alan Fox. I'm a resident of Oakland. Uh, I'm a retired uh, healthcare executive. 
and I'm brand new on the board. This is my first meeting. Um, I spent 25 years in healthcare in Berkeley, Oakland, and San Francisco, uh, working for not-for-profit hospitals and systems, including Dignity Health and Sutter Health, uh, and at Alta Bates and Summit, and also at uh, St. Francis and St. Mary's Hospitals in San Francisco. And I have recently moved back to Oakland from San Francisco, and I'm happy to have this opportunity to try to use my background, uh, both having served uh, as staff to many boards and in administration uh, for 25 years. I hope I can use that background to contribute to the effort to provide high-level health care in Alameda County. Thank you, Trustee Fox. Uh, Trustee Jensen. Oh, um, hi, everyone. I'm Tracy Jensen, resident of Alameda um, now for the past 20 years. And um, before that, I was a resident for about 20 plus years as I was growing up. I um, have a lot in common with a lot of these, a lot of board members, a lot of you. I like um, Taft. I actually received care at some hospitals, Alameda Hospital in particular, and um, and I've been a clinician when I was in college in my first go-round here in the Bay Area. I, I was a phlebotomist at a number of local hospitals during the 80s, during the AIDS crisis. So I can relate to um, the PPE and some of the things that have been going on around here recently. I have um, a healthcare background. After I left the Bay Area, I went to graduate school. And, and after that, I worked in Washington, D.C., for the Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services for almost 10 years in the Medicare program. So I understand a little bit about health policy and public health. And then um, when I returned, like board member Banerjee, I got a little bit of an introduction to, to education policy as a school board member in Alameda for eight years. And um, as you all know, now I'm the board representative for the Alameda Healthcare District. So as you know, Alameda Healthcare District has, um, has Alameda Hospital uh, is the Alameda Hospital has um, a seat on this board. And I'm also very thankful that I was reappointed to and help to represent the district and to ensure and support Alameda Hospital here, and I will continue to do that. I've been on this board since 2014, and on the board of Alameda Healthcare District since 2012. So I'm continuing to do this work, which I love, which is challenging, which is interesting, and I agree with everything that's been said. This is a, a tremendous organization, and there's work to do, but it's moving in the right direction, and I know all of you are going to really make a difference, too to keep it going and um, and do the things that we have to do. Uh, thank you, Trustee Jensen. Trustee Splendario. Uh, thank you, Mike. Uh, my name is Splend Splendario. I, uh, I live in unincorporated Livermore in the eastern part of the county, and uh, we have for several decades. Um, we raised our four kids and the connection to uh, Alameda Hospitals is strong because that's where my four kids were born. Uh, 
uh, also several decades ago. Uh, I am a private practice attorney uh, working mostly out of uh, Pleasanton, uh, but our main office is in Silicon Valley. Uh, I have been a um, public servant for um, well over 15 years. I'm, I'm your public member on Alameda County, LAFCO. They have been for a long time. Uh, if you don't know what LAFCO is, call me and I'll tell you what it is. Um, and I have a, a very steep learning curve. I have, do not have any background in public health. I have no background in health uh, at all. Um, and um, But I have a unwavering belief in the quality of life that we enjoy in Alameda County. And I want to see that continue. And I want to see that strengthened. And when I was asked to, if I'd be willing to serve, uh, my only thought was, um, uh, well, my first thought was, why would you pick me? But my second thought is, of course, I'm, if I'm asked to serve Alameda County, I want to help. Thank you, Trustee Spondario, and thank all of you. So uh, we will go ahead and get down to business. So uh, our first business item, second item on the agenda is the election of officers. Um, and as uh, set forth in the uh, meeting materials, uh, any trustee can nominate uh, to serve. Uh, and we'll start with the, uh, the office of the president. And once the president and the president can preside over the election of the other officers. So trustees may uh, nominate uh, fellow trustees. Trustees may volunteer and nominate themselves uh, for the offices uh, uh, for the office as well too. So, with respect to uh, the office of president of the uh, board of trustees, are there any? I'd like to move to nominate uh, Trustee Bouquet as president of the board. Second. Okay. So there's a motion. There is a motion uh, that was Trustee Esteen to nominate uh, Trustee Bouquet as president, and that's a second by Trustee Banerjee. Mm -hmm. Yes, that's right. Okay, just wanted to make sure that. And I'm so. Uh, are there any other nominations? Uh, I'd like to, does it, do, are you taking nominations for the other, like should we vote on this now? No, I'm determining we if there's any other. On this now, but I'm, yes. I'm asking if there's any other nominations for the president. Uh, Mike, I call the question. Okay, so the question has been called. So there is a motion uh, to elect Trustee Bouquet as president. Uh, Rana, if you can uh, take the roll, please. Trustee Banerjee. Aye. Trustee Bouquet. Do I, am I required to abstain from a vote of myself? That is your choice. You're not required to. I will vote for myself. Trustee <laughs> <laughs> Blue. Aye. Trustee Dung. Aye. Trustee Esteen. Yes. Trustee Fox. Aye. Trustee Jensen. Yes. Trustee Spondorio. Aye. Motion passes unanimously. 
Okay, thank you very much. So, uh, Trustee Bouquet, congratulations, and I will turn the meeting over to you as the uh, president. Uh, the need to elect a vice president and a secretary treasurer under this item. Thank you to the trustees for their faith in me or no one else would step up. <laughs> uh, I take this, the gravity and responsibility of this job uh, uh, with great intent and intention. So um, thank you for trusting me um, and let us, let us, let us begin. Um, the election of board of trustee officers was nicely outlined in the packet brief. I hope uh, uh, our, tr our trustees were able to navigate NASDAQ and or uh, the packet which were sent to you individually. Full terms actually begin uh, at the annual meeting in January. So council, is it, is it, prop, is it correct that we're gonna have to do this again? Yes. Okay, so just make, make note of that for everyone. Um, I will take nominations for the seat of vice president and secretary treasurer of, of the board. I'm willing to receive any, any nominations. I'd like to nominate um, Trustee Jensen for Vice President and Trustee Esteen for Secretary. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. So we're in receipt of nominations for a Trustee uh, Jensen for Vice President and receipt of a nomination for Trustee Esteen for Secretary Treasurer. Are there any other nominations for either of the offices? Anyone? Um, may I take a second for those nominations? Second. And with that, um, uh, should we, Mike, should we call a roll call vote or, or given uh, that there's one nominee for each position, can we just uh, I or nay it? Uh, actually, you should just take a roll call just because the nature of it so and just to be clear so this is a i vote is to elect uh trustee jensen as the vice president and trustee esteen as the secretary treasurer so that's great so ronnie you can call the roll trustee banerjee aye trustee bouquet aye trustee blue aye trustee dung aye Trustee Esteen? Aye. Trustee Fox? Aye. Trustee Jensen? Yes. Trustee Splendorio? Yes. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you to Trustee Jensen and Trustee Esteen. And I really look forward for us working together as an executive committee uh, in service of the rest of this board and this organization. So thank you all. With that, we will close out uh, item B and we'll move into item C, which is selection of meeting dates for calendar year 2021. Now, um, again, I'll go, I'll, I'll go to the trustees. I know navigating NASDAQ is, is, is not easy. So question to the trustees, were you able to review um, the, 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 the meeting date proposal, um, uh, which was put forth in the packet? And we can open this up for discussion. It looked like this proposal was to maintain the calendar uh, as it had been in the past, but most meetings are on Thursdays and Tuesdays. There, there, were, there were some variances in the calendar and I'll make some comment on that as we're going through, um, but I'll open up and I, I, I hope my first move as board president 
isn't to piss off the staff because I know they work really hard. Trustee Jensen? Um, Taft, there is one change in the calendar that happens pretty quickly, actually, in February. Uh, uh, which one, Trustee Jensen? The calendar provides that um, it's, it's, it's a little bit of a, um, a, not confusion, but the calendar provides um, on the chart that audit meets in March, but in the narrative, it provides that audit will meet in February because the um, audit vice president for audit and compliance is retiring. So we've um, the chair, whoever would like to be the chair, if someone would like to to take that chair, um, I'm currently the chair, and I'm definitely supportive of someone who wants to move into that position, but. The, um, the Vice President for Audit and Compliance, Rick Kibler, will be leaving and they'll be transitioning, likely to transition um, in a, a current a current staff person under Rick into the position, at least for an interim time period. And so that's why that meeting is going to be in February rather than March. Got it. Got it. So thank you for that. So um, um as we open up this discussion, I, I definitely want to thank staff for putting this together. I know it was a lot of hard hard work. Obviously, there's a lot of challenge in forecasting a trustee calendar when you don't know what the individual trustee availability is or how the, the this group of trustees envisions its calendar cadence. Um, this is tough work, and again, thanks to the staff. Um, uh, uh, again, the, the packet was nicely written out as to the rationale behind it. Um, one obvious strength that I appreciated was that this proposed calendar unwrapped uh, the QPSC and the full board meetings. So for those of us who attended those meetings, the QPSC flowed directly into the board of trustee meetings. And I, I think the record is that was about a nine hour, uh, nine hours of Zoom. And uh, 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 for the QPSC members, that wasn't so awesome. Um, so that that is one uh, definite, definite strength. The flow of data uh, it was, it, and the cadence is also another strength. My feedback on the proposed calendar issues includes the following. First, reassignment of QPSC to the third Wednesday, it's previously on the fourth Thursday, um, will be problematic for credentialing because Alameda Hospital med staff meets on the third Friday. So we would always lag on credentialing if we indeed put it before Alameda Hospital. So that's that's run problem. Also, uh, uh, my, my, my feedback and considerations, there are a lot of different days. There's some Tuesdays, there's there some Thursdays. And, and, and uh, to be frank, uh, and maybe it's just me, it makes it tougher for all of us as trustees to keep everything a little bit straight. Now, I'm sure there will be calendar invites and the like, but I, I, I'd like it to be straight for the trustees, the staff, uh, who has to do a ton of work to do this stuff and the public to understand when we when we when we go. So in thinking about this and in striving to create some type of simplicity to the complexity, I, I'd like to pose, propose the following for consideration. And I do want staff to feedback and say, oh, that's crazy. Or, or uh, but but here here's sort of my proposal. I propose that we pick one weekday for all regular Board of Trustee committee meetings. So that way we know a fixed day. Um, I propose Wednesdays because no holidays fall on Wednesday. And um, uh, there's Thanksgiving on a Thursday 
and uh, there, there's Christmas Eve leading right onto a Thursday at the end of the year. Uh, further Wednesdays sit right in the middle of the week so people have time to get their bearings. So I propose a Wednesday uh, in consideration for, so everyone could put in their head, Wednesday is board night, be it, be it the committee or subcommittee. I also propose that we pick a regular time for these meetings and I propose in the evenings. Uh, I, I think uh, uh, most everyone here has a full-time job. Uh, Trustee Fox, are you, 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 you report that you've retired? Yeah, yes. Congratulations. So you have some, most of the m more freedom uh, with regard to the meetings, but I propose a regular time for these meetings in the evening. I propose about a two hour block I'm, I'm sort of indifferent on whether it starts at 5.30 or 6, but it allows people to wrap up their work day. And furthermore, should we move into in-person meetings at the back half of 2021, it allows them time to maybe get in the car and commute here if we're ever going to go back to that. I propose a regular cadence on Wednesday evenings at, as follows. Week two the second Wednesday of the month, we would hold that slot for the rotating audit compliance or HR committees. And when there's not an audit or compliance or HR committee, we could perhaps consider us whatever special meetings we needed for that second Wednesday. The, the, the third week, I, I would propose that we have finance on that third week. Currently, they sit at the second week and that we're always lagging a little bit behind. I, I don't know if Kim, Kim's, Kim's, Kim's on the line, so I'll ask for staff comments in a second, but moving, moving finance to week three Wednesday. I would then propose moving QPSC to week four Wednesday, so by then they could have received all the credentialing documents from the two prior staffs. And then I propose that the full board meets on the first week of the month where we can review the data which has already flowed throughout the month. So imagine that, that at, from a mindset point of view, we're always on Wednesdays, Wednesday evenings. It would go audit compliance slash HR week two. Week three would be finance. Week four would be QPSC. And then the following week one would allow us to then wrap up all the data. In looking at the calendar, um, this, this would allow us to uh, really have a meeting every month, at least at the full board. We have historically gone dark in August and in December. But if we're the first week of, of, of the year for full board, I mean, first week of the month, we do get a December meeting and the rest of the committees could go dark during the holidays. Um, that's a lot for people to chew on. So I, I would appreciate feedback first from the uh, trustees and then next from the staff. And, and again, that we're, we're getting to build it like we want. Trustee Jensen. Um, I just wanted to point out that there was one committee that wasn't mentioned in the packet and that's the investment committee that meets quarterly. I, I'm not sure why it was not mentioned. It usually meets quarterly um, in the morning on a Wednesday. Um, at 10 a.m. usually, I, and so I'm not, um, I haven't been on it for some time. It's usually one board member, and maybe Mike or someone can comment on that. Mm. Um, so, uh, yeah, I, 
Yeah, I could just say you know, briefly, you know, that that's not a committee of the board. That's, you know, actually an organization committee. And uh, at some point, you know, the uh, trustees will need to appoint a trustee to as a representative to that committee. But it's separate from your board committee schedule. Okay. Thank you. Other trustees, what are the thoughts on a fixed night? Uh, Trustee Dong. I'm sorry, Mr. President. I released my hand for another comment. If you, <laughs> I was too quick, so go ahead. Well, uh, so I'm opening it up for comments with regard to fi fixing a night for all of us and a rough time. Um, uh, Trustee. Yeah, I appreciate the thought you put into this. Clearly, uh, you've been thinking about it for a while. I like the idea of a single night that makes it more predictable. And uh, also, it makes it clear for, for uh, transparency. And for the public to know Wednesday night is AHS board night. Trustee Splendorio and then Trustee Fox. Yeah, I, I don't mind Wednesdays, I, I, but I will never make the last Wednesday of any month. I cannot, so don't don't put me on any committee. Got it. I, I will not make it. Got it. Trustee Fox. Hey, uh, I have a commitment on a different board that often meets the first Thursday. Okay. From four to seven. Uh, sometimes it meets the second Thursday, but there may be uh, a couple of times a year that that could be a conflict, or that I I might be late for this meeting. And and but you said Thursday, correct? Yes. Wednesday. I'm fine with Wednesday. But Taft, weren't you talking about moving the full board to the first Thursday? No, I'm keeping Wednesday as first, all. It's when the first Wednesday is full board. Oh, I see. That, that works fine for me. I can I, I have conflicts on Mondays and Thursdays. So, Trustee Blue? Um, I'd be in favor in, you know, regular meeting days. It makes it easier for me to be able to schedule um, other meetings. It's really hard when it when it's a moving target. Okay. Trustee Dong and then Trustee Banerjee. Um, I'm fine. I like the consistency of Wednesdays because it kind of frames my headset and I can't do anything on Wednesday. But is it appropriate, Mr. Chair, to provide another comment not on this subject matter, or I can wait? Uh, uh, I, I will. I will wrap back around to you uh, right after Trustee Banerjee's comment. Thank you. Trustee Banerjee comments on, on this proposal. Um, this uh, Wednesday works for me. I do have other um, Thursdays. Uh, there, there are other commitments that I have, so this this does work. And just to kind of put it out there, the, these are the basic committees that we are talking about. At one time when we are done with this, we do have a few standing committees, which we will be dealing with later, but yes. Um, this is streamlines it so we know that it's one day of the week yes. each. Okay. Uh, so, uh, uh, Trustee Dong, I will come back to you uh, uh, on, on that issue, I swear. Um, now I want to go to our, 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 our critical stakeholder. I'm first going to go to our chief operating officer. Uh, Mr. Fonseca, do you, do, you, do, do you have any feedback on this proposal? Uh, you know, uh, Trustee Bouquet, we'd have to. Uh, we'll, we'll look. We'll look at it. I mean, we can certainly work through the process. Uh, I know that uh, Kim, when she speaks to uh, you know all the work that she's doing to put all the financial reports and the timing of the financial reports, uh, my concern uh, at the moment initially would be on. You know, we have 
quite a bit of data that we're capturing as, as it relates to our True North Metric dashboard and some of the information that we provide uh, to our trustees in various of our reports. And uh, due to the lagging indicators that uh, we, we are often working with, uh, it's, it's, you know, they're, they're, that's what really drives oftentimes, uh, you know, the, you know, how concurrent we can be with some of our data. So uh, if, if we have some flexibility in the sense of how far back we would be lagging on some of the data to ensure that we have data, complete data uh, and closed out data, um, then, uh, you know, we can certainly, you know, we can certainly work with whatever schedule you propose, but, you know, that, that will then determine what would be that lagging uh, time frame that we would be looking at either a month behind or two months behind, depending on the information and the, and the data. Okay. Um, uh, uh, trustees, our, our chief financial officer is uh, Kim Miranda. Kim, uh, comments on this? I, I was hoping you'd be happy because I thought I bought you an extra week. You know what? I, I'd actually appreciate one less week. I was actually um, looking yeah. forward to having the finance committee the first week of the month. Uh, yeah. Doesn't matter to me Wednesday, Thursday, and the reason for that is is once we uh, present the financial statements to the finance committee and we get them locked down, it allows everybody else to use that data in their reports, and it makes us a month more current. So, um, from my perspective, I just assume you know, complete the financials from the previous month, get it done before we start a new month. Um, and if we move it to the third week, I can't post by the second week. So we would continue to be, you know, two months behind. So, so, so again, thank you for that feedback. The challenge also we have is on med staff credentialing who does their, their work in the third week. So QPSC has to go in the fourth week. Um, Finance could switch with um, switch with audit compliance and go into week two and stay where you are. Right now, it's the second Tuesday, right? So it, it, it's the it's second, second Thursday. Finance is, finance is currently the second Thursday. Thursday. Yes. Would second Wednesday work, Kim? We could do it, but we'd still be behind because I it's all about the 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 posting time is we have to post everything a week in advance and we have to have time to complete the close. So um, my thought was if we could finish the financials by the third week, we'd post it and then it'd be ready for the first week. But um, you know, I, I I understand you have to balance everybody's needs. So. Yeah. Because the full the full board needs to approve, yeah. Either correct, it's we're sort of locked in with these when we do this four Wednesday kind of thing. Um, is this is this something that we can negotiate, Kim? Uh, is this does this is this a hill worth dying on or do, no? It's it's it just means we'll continue with the lag that we currently have. I was just trying to reduce one month of the lag. Got it. Um, Trustee Bouquet, if I could jump in right here, you know the other thing with regard to finance, so the, you know the, and under the procedures, the finance committee reviews and makes recommendations on contracts for approval, um, and so you know now, if I uh, understand it correctly, um, uh, the the board meeting will. I guess you know the question that you know, would have to be is that you know you know typically the finance committee has been in the earlier part of the month and then the board meeting has been the latter part of the month and so finance you know recommends on the contract the board approves it so now this is going to flip that around a little bit I don't know that it's necessarily going to um, impact anything it just might delay things because now there's they're sort of out of sync if you will so. 
as I was thinking of this, I, I was trying to, in the original uh, version, keeping a two-week spread between finance and the full board, which is why I selected week three for finance, wrapping around to week one. That was sort of the rationale. Because uh, moving finance to week two, and then uh, that would give you three a three-week separation. So, um, and credentialing has to follow, I mean, is, stuck, is fixed at week four. So that's the, the, the puzzle pieces right here. Mr. Chair. Yes, ma'am, I'm coming back to you and trustee. No, this, this, is on, this is on this subject matter. Yes, ma'am, and then you get another. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> um, Mr. Chair, may I suggest that our, our board chair have further discussion with the staff and we'll hope that the staff will accommodate the needs of the trustees. Yes. May I suggest that and to report back to us at by the end of the month? I, 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 I would hold that as a, as a motion that uh, I think uh, is appropriate. It, uh, can I get a second on that? Can we make a motion, not just to delay, but to agree that we'll work with Wednesday? Or is it too premature to ask for the set? Like, can we accept part of this? Even if we don't commit to the committee schedule tonight, we can commit to Wednesdays at 6, 5.36? Did we pick a time? I, I think that would be a great thing to come out, and then we could rearrange however. Um, right. um, and that way we all walk out with a feeling for our 2021 calendar. Absolutely. Okay. Um, my Again, if, yeah, if I could just interject. So I, I think it would be helpful if you could set the meeting schedule that you want for the month of January. You're not going to meet again. And so I think that you're going to want to be able to let people know what time commitments and date commitments to make for the month of January. So if you want to bring this back to the January meeting to approve the schedule for the rest of the year, that's fine. But I think that it would make sense for you to go ahead and set dates tonight for the January meetings. Um, and that may continue through the rest of the year, but that way everyone can know what to plan for in January. Okay. Um, uh, as proposed, uh, finance is uh, set to, uh, as previously, not by us, as proposed by staff, Finance comes on Thursday, uh, January 7th. Um, then um, the full board comes uh, on, where's the full board? Jan 21st. Jan 21st, sorry, it's purple, yes. So that, that, that is actually also a two week lag. Um, For January, just to keep it safe for, uh, for, for staff, um, would this uh, group of trustees be willing to, for January only, accept the proposal uh, by staff, which is finance on, thir actually, Alan, are, where are you on Thursday the 7th? Where am I? I mean, are you, you said I'm you around. have- I'm around. You said you had obligations on Thursdays. Right, but it's it's only uh, every third month. So no problem on January 7th. Okay, so be, because I, I suspect you'll be participating on the finance committee. Okay. Um, uh, the, the issue with the proposal is it still has uh, problems with the credentialing packets from the med staff. 
There's going to be a little problem too on finance because that's the first week of the month and I haven't even told my staff about the change. So, so then uh, I think the the proposal of the Wednesdays, we can yeah. figure out which which week will be. Yeah. Which week will work, but Wednesdays 5:30. Okay. So, I think so. So let, let, let trustees let's land on Wednesdays at 5:30, and then um, we we will work with the staff. Mike, at least we have dates. Uh, sorry, a day, and and uh, barring uh, the the necessity for uh, the full board to follow QPSC, we have flexibility in the other two slots. Okay. Five thirty or six? Just one one more time. Like, is everybody yeah. okay with that time? Oh, wait, wait, actually, let's land on one. Five thirty or six? Who wants? Who 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 uh, who favors five thirty? Raise your hand. I'm I'm fine either way. Who, who proposes six? I'm fine either way, though. Either way. Um, let's do 5.30 so people have a chance of getting dinner. Is that acceptable? So may I entertain a motion to accept Wednesdays uh, uh, beginning at 5.30 for board meetings for the calendar 2021 year with working with the staff to define the uh, exactitudes of where everything falls so moved second all in favor aye aye actually you have actually you have to do a roll call okay thank you Glenn. Uh, uh let's do a roll call uh rana on this issue so a motion to hold meetings on wednesdays at 5 30 in january uh, staff will set which meeting goes on which Wednesday, and then at the board meeting in January, we'll review the rest of the 2021 calendar, right? Yes. Excellent. Trustee Banerjee? Yes. Trustee Bouquet? Yes. Trustee Blue? Yes. Trustee Dong? Yes. Trustee Esteen? Yes. Trustee Fox? Yes. Trustee Jensen. Yes. Trustee Splendorio. Aye. Motion passes unanimously. Thank you. So at least people can now forecast their calendar and, and uh, the executive committee will work with staff to make sure it meets it meets every all stakeholders to the best of our ability. Thank you. With that, we'll close out item C. We'll go to item D, which is a big one, assignment to board committees. Now, uh, uh, just a recollection for all of us together. There are Sorry, point of order, Mr. Chair. Please. Wrap back around to me. Um, yes. two, two points I want to uh, put out there. The first is um, the consideration at a future agenda of a forming a temporary task force or ad hoc committee regarding governance, since that'll be a very large task for the system as well as the county. Um, the second is the consideration of a future discussion of moving closed session to the beginning of our board of trustee meetings so that we can sunshine the decisions from closed session at an earlier time for our constituents who attend the meetings. Uh, thank you. Thank you, Trustee Dong. I, I don't think that's an actionable thing at this point. I think we get to decide how it was. I, I, I actually think both of those suggestions have great merit. Um, so um, let's talk through that. Uh, actually, your first item, I'm going to couch within uh, item D, assignment to board committees. 
Correct. So a couple of things, uh, uh, General Counsel created a very nice uh, brief on this. Um, for us, there are four standing committees we need to populate this evening. Human Resources, Audit Compliance, Finance, and the Quality Committee. Uh, remember the Executive Committee is populated by the three officers, uh, uh, Trustee Jensen and Trustee Esteen and myself. A couple of procedural issues which need to be noted um, before we populate these committees. First, generally speaking, no committee should constitute a quorum of the board. Uh, so therefore, no committee should really have more than four members. Um, Mike, it said, quote, except in unusual circumstances. Can you tell me what that means? It means that, you know, in the past, there have been committees that constitute a quorum of the board. At one point, QPSC had... I believe actually six members and there was another point in time when the finance committee had five or six members. So, okay. uh, and I think that there were sort of, you know, special circumstances that, you know, called for, you know, that degree of participation, but as a practical matter, committees are committees and the board is the board. So yes, got it. Okay. So generally speaking, we try not to have a quorum, but uh, we, we have made exception to that. Next, the finance chair should not sit on the audit compliance committee. Uh, this is a best governance practice, which we, uh, we have previously held to. Um, next, the audit compliance chair should not sit on the finance committee. Next, the majority of the audit compliance committee should also not be on finance. So in real terms, only one to two people should potentially cross over. Um, uh, so with that, um, the recommendation in the packet, and I appreciate you, Mike, uh, doing the hard work for me on the ask. The ask is three assignments are recommended per trustee. So, uh, three, three committees and quote, <laughs> the president can make assignments after discussion. If a clear consensus is not apparent, the president can make the assignments after the meeting and notify trustees as appropriate. So we of course want people to participate on things that we want, but we have a lot of work to do as staffed by these standing committees. So, so let, let's open up with uh, the finance committee. Um, um, it, it, it is my, uh, so we're just having a discussion before we make that. Who would be interested, nudge, nudge, uh, Trustee Fox, um, who, who would be interested in being on the finance committee? Uh, I, I, so tr I, we, we have uh, one taker, Trustee Fox. I, I, I would ultimately propose that I think he would make an excellent chair of the Finance Committee. Um, do we have any other uh, uh, people who would be willing to contribute to this very, very important meeting given uh, our, our Chief Financial Officer's uh, ongoing work with us in her report today? You can include me if you want. Thank you, Splen. So right now our proposal is Fox Splendorio. Um, as the board president, I'm, I sit ex officio on all the, Trustee Banerjee? Yeah, as a veteran a trustee, I would say that quality and finance are very key committees for folks to, um, to join, and so if you come from a clinical background and you are have a sense of the uh, the patient side of things, I strongly urge that join for those who 
then to join the finance where that would be a good learning space as well. And um, but I, choose a committee. I really appreciate that. I, I very much appreciate that comment. Putting a, a clinical view within finance committee, putting a financial view within the clinical committees, I think is something that could serve us. Um, so we we have. Uh, Two nurses on our on our uh, on our on our on our trustee list, um, and it would be it would be great in that consideration to hear from one of them. I will I will also sit on the finance committee as I will sit on every committee. Um, so Fox Splendorio Bouquet. Any other takers? I would like to be, but I'm waiting to see, waiting for um, our new trustees to make their assignments first. Got it. Okay. So, so we'll, we'll keep that one sort of open as we move down to the next committee, the QPSC committee. Um, I have uh, uh, chaired this committee for the past three years. I'd argue that it's probably difficult to chair uh, a subcommittee as well as all, attend all the committees. Um, I, I myself would be happy to get QPSC started with a new, a new group. This would, this would be a, a completely new QPSC with the caveats that Trustee Jensen has sat on the committee as well as Trustee Banerjee. So, so they have experience on the QPSC. Um, but do we have any takers for the QPSC? Um, Taft, I, I really feel strongly that I should stay on the QPSC and, and return to the QPSC because Alameda Hospital does present to the QPSC Alameda Hospital um, quality and credentialing and services are a big part of the QPSC and I feel that it's important for me to be there and to to participate in that. Uh, well received okay I, I thought I saw trustees Dong, trustee Dong's hand go up so I, I have Jensen and Dong. Started as well. Esteen. Esteen. And um, Taft, did you say that you are stepping down as the chair? I, I think that ultimately I will will probably, but I will I, I I have to talk that over with the committee. I would probably give my, give it maybe at least two meetings or three meetings just to set the tone, uh, or or sorry, see how it's previously been done, and then the next chair would have the latitude, of course, to do it like they want. Okay. Well, um, I would be I would be happy to take the chair role if that happens then. Okay, well, wonderful. Okay. Well, just just to be clear, so the uh, the president assigns trustees to the committees, the committees determine who the chair of the committee will be. So right now you're just deciding the committee membership. Got it. Okay. So, so far we have Dong, uh, uh, Jensen, and Esteen. Um, uh, in in, in uh, Trustee Banerjee, I know you have an interest in this and also I think we previously discussed uh, having someone with a financial mind having having uh, contributions to quality. Trustee Banerjee, comments? Yeah, I, I would join and I would say that we have made an exception uh, for QPSC about you know the quorum uh, having uh, having a majority of the board because all of us have felt so strongly about being at a space where we can hear the voices of the nurses the physicians and hear from the uh, from our clinical staff so um we will be exceeding that but i will be joining qpsc too okay 
Excellent. Um, so then I would ask for consideration e either either Trustee Splendorio or Fox to consider this to, to learn what we do here in our health system through the Quality Committee. Sure. Trustee Splendaro, you got to make it harder than that for me. <laughs> oh, I'll make, I can make your life difficult. Okay, sure. <laughs> I figured. Um, so thank you. So uh, we have right now for the uh, Quality Committee, Trustees Dong, Jensen, Esteen, Banerjee, and Splendorio. And, and I will again uh, attend ex, uh, uh, in the beginning as the chair and then continue as ex officio. So we sort of, um, uh, we did achieve a quorum and you're right, Trustee Banerjee, we've done that before. We have audit compliance, which, which we need. And, and uh, Trustee Splendorio, as a lawyer, I, I, I can't imagine someone who might be best suited to have these kind of uh, oversights for our, for our organization. Comments? For, for, for which one again, I'm sorry. This is audit and compliance, making sure we're following the rules. Oh, okay. So, yeah, I'm fine with that. I'll, I'll, okay, I see that the chair of the finance committee cannot serve in the audit. So I, that's fine. I don't want to be chair. Uh, Alan can be chair. Well, I don't want to be chair either, but I volunteer for the audit committee. Yeah. I would prefer not to chair finance because I have two other boards where I'm doing finance, the chair of finance. And All right. Well, there, there, there's, your, there's, there's your conundrum, Taft. Yeah, we have a conundrum. Uh, Mike, can you guide me? Uh, so wait, so Splend, you said you would be willing. Uh, sorry, you, if you're audit compliance, you can't sit. If, yeah, okay. Um, Trustee Blue, do you have an interest in audit and compliance? I know it's sure. exciting stuff. And I'd also be interested in being on human resources. So Trustee Blue, you would, you would uh, be on audit compliance as well as HR, um, that if you would be willing to chair um, the audit compliance, that would allow Trustee Splendario uh, out of his fix where he could attend finance as well. But I'll, give, I'll but, give it my best. But that's for audit, that's, that as general counsel advised, that's for audit compliance to figure out. So for know. audit compliance, we have Trustee Splendario and Trustee Blue. We need probably one more, actually, that would probably be me, right, Mike? I was going to volunteer for that one, too. Um, we can't have a majority okay. of the Audit Compliance Committee on the Finance Committee. Okay. So, so um, that makes that one a little bit difficult. Actually, no, it doesn't. Um, you can be on it as well as I am. That's four, so that's not a majority. Okay. So, so our... To be clear, so you're talking about you would actually be assigned to that committee, not just attending as an ex officio member. Um, that, that would help us get around um, uh, the majority. Is that correct, General Counsel? Yeah, yeah, and I, I mean, I'm just, you know, I just want to make sure that I was understand, you know, uh, understanding it. So if you're assigned to the committee, that's you know, a little bit different than you attending meetings, you know, by virtue of being one of, you know, the president. So okay. just a little bit. In there. So, so that that would help us get out of the conundrum of a majority if if I was assigned to that committee. I think he's saying the opposite. If you're ex officio, then you're not the majority. No, no, no. Because Splendorio and Fox also sit on the finance committee. Oh, I see. I see. Yes. So my attendance there makes it a non-majority. 
Okay, so we will, uh, Bouquet will be assigned to audit compliance, Splendorio, Blue, and Fox. And trustee, oh. And y yes, trustee Banerjee. Uh, trustee Blue, I've been chair of the audit and compliance for a number of years and I can support you and um, help with the onboarding and all it's it's right now it's a quarterly meeting so the cadence is less but we might look to see uh, but yeah i uh, though i i won't be serving on that committee I, i'll be happy to help okay thank you trustee Banerjee. and last of our fixed committees we have an hr committee this is currently chaired by trustee jensen or has historically been chaired by trustee jensen Trustee Blue has just uh, advised that she would be willing to participate. Trustee Dong? Yes? So I'm also have... willing to serve. Esteen. Dong, Esteen, Blue. Trustee Jensen, will you be staying on that committee? Sure. Okay. Mr. Okay. Chair, a uh, point of clarification. Yes, ma'am. Um, these meetings, I'm assuming, are all public? Yes. Okay, thank you. So, so we, we are now left with the, to, with the Finance Committee. We have Fox, Splendorio, uh, uh, and I can either be assigned or sit ex officio. I, don't, I can decide on that as, as, as it comes. Do we have anyone else who would be interested in the Finance Committee? I will join. I would strongly, um, uh, Trustee Estine, how many committees do you have right now? Um, if you count the executive committee, three. Uh, I'm concerned about my own bandwidth. If I serve on finance, though I do have an interest, I'm just concerned I may not uh, be at full capacity if I commit. You, secretary, you, as secretary treasurer, I think you need to be on finance. That is a really good point. <laughs> Count me in. Got it. And then, Buket, is it a problem for me to be on the finance? It is, right? Because I'm on audit and compliance. I'm trying to see here. Yes, that would create a problem for you because you know okay. you you and trustee uh, trustee Bouquet and trustee Blue were the two non-finance members on the audit and compliance that you have right now. So, so um, Rana, have you been helping navigate through this mess? <laughs> yes. Sorry. So, so here's what I think I what what I just wrote down: finance will be Esteen Fox. Splendorio, Bouquet, and Banerjee. QPSC will be Dong, Jensen, Esteen, Banerjee, and Splendorio, and Bouquet for a short time, uh, and then probably moving to ex officio. Um, audit compliance will be uh, Splendorio, Blue, Fox, and Bouquet as a sitting member to get around that majority issue. HR will be Jensen, Blue, Dong, and Esteen. Does that sound so, appropriately captured? So, so again, Ed, if you're gonna assign, be assigned to the finance committee, 
that now means that three members of the audit and compliance committee are members of the finance committee. So that's okay. the problem. Great. So I'll take my assignment off of finance and attend ex officio. Does that, does that help us, sir? Yep. That solves the problem. Well, I'm only assigned to audit compliance. Council, have we broken any rules here by the, the these assignments? Looks to be uh, okay. Yep. Okay. Wow. Thank you, guys. Uh, a couple of comments. I, I want to say a few words on ad hoc committees. This is outlined in Appendix E of our policies and procedures. So, for special projects and discrete items requiring trustee input. For special projects and discrete items requiring trustee input, uh, uh, these are what ad hoc committees are for, not to conduct regular business of the board. Examples of some of our ad hoc committees have included the Alameda Seismic Committee, trustee search committees, the retreat committee, um, and I, I think trustee uh, Dong uh, actually brought up uh, uh, another ad hoc committee, which is going to be of vital importance to us, which is as we enter our governance discussion. So uh, these committees are appointed by the president and should not include a majority of the board. So four people max on any of these uh, ad hoc committees. Meetings are, 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 are not subject to noticing requirements uh, of the Brown Act and, and their uh, findings will be made in report to the full board of trustees. So we're gonna be talking uh, ultimately about some ad hoc committees. We have a number of fish to fry uh, coming into it and uh, probably uh, uh, we'll be reporting out um, to uh, the public when we form such ad hoc committees. And I think as we go into one of our agenda items, one of the products of that will be the formation of a governance ad hoc committee. And we do need to maintain some of the existing ad hoc committees, which include Alameda Seismic, it includes, we have a COVID-19, um, uh, Trustee Banerjee, help me. Yeah, we've had an uh, seismic, we have a COVID-19 and there is a um, possibility of like, we have opportunities, this is not an ad hoc, but we have a health equity, diversity, inclusion right. committee, um, right. committee as well. So that is uh, a, a large committee with different sources <laughs> and um, there's an opportunity for any trustee to join that one as well. Okay, so, so we're gonna have to have some uh, internal discussions about where our ad hoc committees come out and to the public that will be reported back to you when there is the formation of an ad hoc committee. Uh, but, but with that, I will close out this item, which is item D, assignment to board uh, committees. And uh, Rana, you got it, right? I do. It is an action item, though, if you want to call a vote. Oh, um, uh, can I call that, a vote? Uh, well, yeah, if you want to vote, I mean, again, the president, you know, is empowered to appoint people to committees, so it's not the board making, you know, taking action here. Um, so, but you can certainly announce what the, you've announced what the committee assignments are, and uh, I think that's sufficient under the cause, so. Okay. Thank you, Mike. So with that, we've announced who they are. Those are the, are the committees and we'll make sure that everyone knows who sits on what committees. We now enter into item E, reports, updates of pending items. Um, I'd like to introduce our chief financial officer to the trustees. Uh, this is Kim Miranda. 
at, uh, item E1 is the status of the FY 2021 uh, re uh, report. I know it's drinking from the fire hose for our trustees, but uh, we're, uh, we've advised staff to, to, to give it into the best digestible format that we can. Um, Ms. Miranda, you, the floor is yours. I share my screen here. Um, everybody see it? No. No. Work here. How about now? We're on. Yes. Yes. You're good. Okay. All right. This is a, kind of an abbreviated presentation. Um, I'll go through it pretty quickly. It's, uh, it's the um, October financial report and then just uh, the budget and uh, cash flow. Um, typically do a volume slide. Uh, the only thing I want to point out here is our acute dates are behind budget 22.5%. Uh, year to date, it's 11.2%. Just so the, the board understands, we did not try to reduce or adjust our volumes for the pandemic. We didn't have a crystal ball. We didn't know how long it would last. So we budgeted based on uh, as if the pandemic would have uh, ended as of July. So uh, we're year to date about 11% off, which you could directly, um, um, probably directly correlate to the pandemic. In October, the reason why it is so much uh, higher uh, difference from budget is because uh, of the strike. So we had lower volumes due to the strike as well in October. Uh, the other thing I just want to point out here is the elective procedures are quite a bit below. So we're seeing the, a mix of service change as a result of the pandemic. So outpatient surgeries are a miss year to date, almost 48%. A little less than that uh, for the month of October, which is a little odd, but that's because we did some catch up with getting our posting logs uh, completed. Sorry, Kim, if I can interrupt. We see it in presenter mode. Can you just, uh, I, I, we see it in your notes uh, mode. So if you can expand it a little bit, do it in. Um, I'm not sure what you're seeing, so uh, if I close this, maybe. Just not full screen, but um, keep, I think you can keep it moving. That, that's, that, uh, there we go. That's better. Okay. So then uh, here are the results for October and year-to-date. <laughs> so... For October, it was uh, not a good month for us. Our net loss was 13.8 million. Um, our EBITDA, that's earnings before interest depreciation and amortization. So in essence, that's the indication of cash flow that we generated. Uh, we had a miss of thir uh, almost 14 million for the month of October. Year to date, that puts us at a net income loss of 31.8, which is a you know, miss from budget of 25.7 million. And on the EBITDA or cash flow front, um, we are negative 26.4 and year to date 30, I'm sorry, budget variance of 35.8 million. So on the uh, revenue slide here, 
Um, the only thing I want to point out is you can see the gross patient revenue. There's a miss there of the 15.7, and that does correlate with the um, does correlate with the. Um, we'll go back. Does correlate with the lower volumes I just uh, talked about. Uh, other than that, we had a timing difference on the behavioral health um, FY20 settlement. Um, normally, that the, that funding would have hit the one budget, but we accrued it back into 20 because of the timing of the reconciliation and audit. So we're going to have a permanent dish, uh, difference there. Other item I wanted to note is we did get an epic good install credit of 760,000. That's uh, great news for our um, epic implementation. My understanding is that this that a lot of organizations don't ever receive this kind of credit, uh, and it's uh, it's it was given to us because of the you know the hard work the team has uh, has done in getting implemented and stabilized. The next slide here is the uh, expenses, and I cannot go back, so I don't know unless I start over again. This is not working well at all. Well, I will uh, just speak to it. So on the expense slide, uh, the labor slide is the next slide, which will get me caught up. Um, there's really only a couple of uh, things I wanted to point out here. And that is that, you know, you would expect us to be favorable in our expenses because our volumes are down, and we are. We're uh, 6.6 .6 million favorable for the month of October. Um, I'm sorry, uh, we're negative in um, October. Uh, however, year-to-date, we are positive 4.9 million. That's what you'd expect. We've got lower volumes. In the month of October, however, because of the strike, we had additional costs that uh, flipped us to a negative position. Um, the only other item there is materials and supplies, and that is directly related to COVID. Um, our antiviral drugs are uh, over budget by uh, 1.3 million year to date, and we're seeing you know, a lot of additional costs for cleaning and lab agents. And I did in the appendix give you an update on the COVID expenses if you wanna look at that. And the next slide here is the labor, and this is where you see that big um, hit for the strike. Um, if you combine our registry and labor costs, uh, we're over six and a half million dollars. Um, we did have some offset in the in the sense that our average payroll dropped because we were providing uh, we were using a registry, but net net was uh, definitely a hit to the our labor costs. We have a partial offset in benefits, and that's because our employees are adhering to shelter-in-place and deferring elective services, so that is uh, resulting in the savings. And also worth noting on this slide is the year-to-date under the retirement. Uh, we did get the actuarial reports between the time we uh, approved the interim and final budget, so we are truing it up for the rest of the year, but we do have a, a big variance for the first um, three months of the year when we were operating under the interim budget before we had the reports. So I don't know what you can see and what you can't see. So we we can see we're now on AR days. Huh? We can see AR days increase zero point four days. Okay. <laughs> 
lost it here. Yeah, I don't know. This is the first time I've tried to do this from home, and uh, we have a great setup here, except for what I'm trying to present. You want to talk us through it? I know it's hard when numbers. Yeah, I'm trying to be quick. Mike, can you show your screen? Well, the issue is that I somehow, between, it's interesting, I'll have to talk to, to Mark later to find out why I've got two screens with different presentations on them. Mm -hmm. There we go, I'll just go here. I can project from the board meeting book uh, if that'll make it easier for you. Let me let me try to help you out here. I think. Can you see it now? I think I got it. Okay. Can you all see that now? The board, the balance sheet metrics. No, huh? Looks like I ended up stop not sharing. <laughs> Yeah. Kim, I've tried to pull it up from the board uh, meeting packet. Does that help you? Thanks, Sandra. Sure. Good yeah. save. I'll go back to here then. Are you reflect? Are you on presenting uh, now? Yeah, I'm on slide eight. The uh, financial report balance sheet key metric. Thank you very much. All right, so just a couple quick things here. Um, our AR days increased slightly, 0.4. Uh, this is the first time we've seen an increase. It's been a steady decrease as we've stabilized the revenue cycle. And uh, the point four really relates to us uh, holding some claims to, that we've uh, to uh, make sure that we've, we're compliant with our uh, billing. We should be able to get those dropped out and, and continue our downward trend. Um, I added the uh, net position here slide. This is something we talked about doing. This is, in essence, um, the bottom line, if you will, for Alameda Health System. And you can see at year end, we were at a negative uh, 277.8 million. And now we're up to 309.3, which is going the wrong way. And that is definitely driven from um, the pandemic and, and the strike activity. I'm sure we'll be talking about that a lot more. Uh, and then the next couple slides are just the budget. Oh, I put those in there for you. So the next slide is the uh, budget. And uh, we're currently at an operating margin of just about break even. Uh, the EBITDA margin is 2.3%. We set out as a 
organization to hit a 3% target. We uh, were not able to do that. So we started with like a break-even interim budget. And then we uh, developed initiatives to get us up to a 3% margin. And uh, what I want to make sure that everyone takes away is there are a lot of initiatives built into this budget that, um, that are at risk. Um, obviously, one, we assume that the pandemic, uh, you know, would end or we would get additional CARES funding or money to offset the hit from the pandemic. Um, we also had labor concessions in there that still need to be negotiated. Uh, we built in performance improvement. We uh, had reductions in length of stay. We also um, built in revenue increases on our commercial products. So all of that uh, is in play, and um, I'm sure I will be giving updates on all of those things at the uh, next uh, finance committee. And the last slide is our cash flow. So it starts at the top there for budget 21, uh, rolling over the EBITDA, that again is the earnings before interest, depreciation, and amortization, 24.9 million and 2.3%. And then there are some balance sheet impacts that are going to reduce cash flow this year, most of that coming from supplemental funding. Then uh, our previous board approved new capital requests of 43.4 million. We had uh, commitments and other projects that were in play. So the total of all of those are a hit of 63.9, just about 64 million. There is an offset from some other funding sources there of 2.6. And then I've grouped all the county transactions there. Um, I won't walk through them all tonight. Uh, the first one there, POB, is our pension obligation. Uh, people typically want to know what that is. The net of the county transaction is actually an inflow of 4.3 million. And so if I add up all of those cash flow impacts, it's a negative $67 million. And so if, I, if uh, everything plays out the way we had planned, we would increase our net negative balance or our line of credit with the county. It would be the 83 million that we started with. And then we're adding another 67 million onto our line of credit, therefore ending the year at 150 million. The permanent agreement says we're not supposed to exceed 120 million. So we were projecting that we would be over that by 30 million. Hasn't happened yet, you know, and there we as a group will, will kind of take a look at this, but that's where we uh, currently landed with the old board. There are these liabilities sitting out there from many years ago. We've got the Medi-Cal old waivers from FY09 to FY15. We've got Medi-Cal settlements from FY11 through 18 and this FQ settlement from FY08 to FY13 that's still hanging out there that still needs to be um, um, basically reconciled with the state. So. I don't know when these things are going to settle and when they're going to come due. Um, we had thought that the waivers would be done now here in December and it has not happened. So this, these are just kind of kicking down the road. But if we were to get those demands for payment, 
then we would far exceed the NNB. So that's uh, my presentation for tonight. I don't know if anybody has questions for me. Thank, Thank you. you for that. And I um, wasn't part of the board orientation um, that in laying more of a context of our fiscal situation uh, for the board, but we, um, two things. One is that when we do talk about the governance restructure of the HS board, a, a portion of that is our financial situation. Um, the board had uh, contracted with this organization, WIFLI, to do um, a financial assessment and in two phases. And so we will be a... Um, oh, Rana, may, may I suggest that, that the WIFLI report be um, shared with all of the board so that we understand that context too. And I think that for continuity's sake, um, so, um, some of us who've been on the board would be happy to walk you through that report as well. There's a phase two that's coming out too that'll give us a sense of these are the monthly things. So this year with the, um, with the pandemic and all of the other things that have come due, the old waivers and things, but in general, what the fiscal situation is, I think is very, very important for the board to understand and which in a regular board meeting, sometimes in a standing board meeting, some of that context um, um, is uh, as much as you can, Kim, uh, please, <laughs> you're doing a really good job, share that as well, uh, but we as, Continuing members, I think, also uh, would be happy to walk you through some of the um, uh, the assessments that have been done in through 2020 that have given us a much better sense of, or giving us a slightly clearer sense of like what are our expenses, where they are, what are some of the structural issues that we are dealing with for the fiscal situation that is um, that we have. Yeah. Um, uh, I would add to um, where uh, the phase two of that agreement is moving along and uh, we uh, were getting uh, ready to uh, present financial statements by each entity in the organization to really understand where, you know, the revenue and expenses are and, um, you know, what opportunities we have. Uh, so uh, thanks for bringing that up. It, we are moving along and, and it, it is, it's going well. We've got our first set of data to, to, to manipulate and, and make sure that we've got it right. So uh, it's a lot of allocations. Okay. Thank you, Kim, for that report. Rana, apologies in advance for work. Um, uh, to, to somewhat towards reducing the velocity of the fire hose, uh, which uh, everyone's drinking from, for the finance committee, would it be possible just to do a minutes only for this fiscal year starting since July? Because the minutes only are probably only like three or four pages. That might help our uh, finance committee have their entree into, into the heavy work just so they can read the minutes from July through till till now. Uh, because I know it's tough to extract it from NASDAQ right now when we're everyone's trying to learn it. So, Ron, if you, uh, apologies in advance for the request, but if we could do that to the committee members for finance, Esteen, Fox, Lindorio, 
and Banerjee uh, to, to allow us to have our bearings. Um, thank you. With that, we will close out um, item E1. Thank you for, to our CFO for giving us that report. We'll now move into item two, the regulatory update. Uh, new trustees, this is Dr. Tanvir Hussein. He is our chief quality officer. Uh, Dr. Hussein, you have the floor. You're on, you got mute. Can you see my screen okay? Yes, sir. And if you can buy us time, it would be appreciated. <laughs> Most definitely, I will even use my stopwatch here. Um, so good evening, uh, trustees. Um, I'm an internist at Highland and Chief Quality Officer. It's a pleasure to meet, with, uh, meet you today, and I'm looking forward to learning from you and working with you uh, in the coming uh, years. Um, I'm also very delighted that you've selected that quality and safety be a part of your inaugural um, agenda, uh, represented by a regulatory update. Um, so the most pressing and um, critical regulatory aspect that we should discuss today is the accreditation of the core license. The core license includes Highland, John George, the hospital-based clinics at Highland, Fairmont, San Leandro. Um, every healthcare facility that's licensed in order to maintain its funding from Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services has to demonstrate um, compliance with the conditions of participation. There are about 24, um, and that breaks down about 75 standards that are uh, articulated in the code uh, for federal, federal regulation. Um, <clears throat> CMS does not go around to hospitals to uh, assure that facilities are adhering to these uh, conditions of participation, they have um, accrediting agencies that they deem, one of which, the largest of which, is a joint commission. So uh, the joint commission uh, came to, uh, there's two ways that an accrediting agency uh, ensures that, um, uh, that a facility is in uh, compliance with the conditions of participation. There's an accreditation arm, and then there's an arm that looks at any quality and safety issues that arise, and um, joint commission has an office of quality and patient safety. So I'm gonna talk about both of those arms this evening. Uh, the first arm, the accrediting arm, um, Joint Commission does a triannual survey. They came quite early to our organization um, and they had a five-day survey between February 24th and 28th. Um, it was an humbling experience. Um, fortunately, we did not receive any findings that would be identified as immediate threat to life but uh, we were faced with condition level findings, i.e. we were not in compliance with conditions of participation, which we must meet to maintain our funding uh, for, from CMS. The areas uh, where we had condition level findings were governing body, environment of care, infection control, surgical services, and patient rights. We submitted a plan of correction or called the evidence of standard compliance. That's the first step and making sure we can re-demonstrate our compliance with the conditions of participation. That was accepted on April 14th of this year without any revisions or edits. Uh, because of the pandemic, the typical timeline uh, for resurvey was delayed, um, and they came on November 17th. In that brief period, uh, we were not in purple tier prior to our entering into the purple tier. And um, uh, the first part of that resurvey was to ensure that we have cleared all our conditions of participation. This is the Medicare deficiency survey. That was followed by a three-day survey looking at every other single finding that was uh, discovered during the triannual survey. So that was November 17th and then 18th through 20th. During the span of those resurvey by the accrediting, accrediting arm of the Joint Commission, 
We also had a surprise uh, visit uh, from the Office of Quality and Patient Safety that came to investigate concerns that they had seen in the media and anonymous complaints around gender bias, the work stoppage and safety related to that, governance changes, and quality of care. So that surveyor um, investigated this, um, and it's in the PowerPoint, all the modalities and the methodologies that that surveyor used uh, to investigate those complaints and media concerns. So from the accrediting arm, the first step as I, uh, the first part of that survey is that we needed to show we were back in compliance with the conditions of, survey, uh, uh, conditions of participation. We did receive that final report. We have no further condition level findings. So this is very good. We've satisfied, we've demonstrated satisfaction that we are back in compliance with the conditions of participation. We did have some standard level findings um, and we have 60 days to submit um, our evidence of standard compliance. Now, the second portion of that accrediting resurvey is the preliminary denial of accreditation resurvey. Um, uh, and we were able to clear almost everything with only seven um, standard level findings. Um, we have not received that final report. Um, actually, the uh, accrediting council of the Joint Commission met today and we're hoping uh, to hear back from them soon on what their final deliberation is around our, uh, our accreditation status, but we are very optimistic based on um, the feedback that the surveyors provided while they were here, and I, and I will discuss that here briefly. Then on the Office of the Quality and Patient Safety arm, um, there were no findings from their uh, review of complaints and media concerns. So next steps. As I mentioned to you, the Accreditation Council of the Joint Commission is reviewing our Medicare deficiency survey, which we had uh, no condition level findings, as well as a few findings that came from that survey. And they will send us a letter that describes our current accreditation status. Hopefully it is the removal of the preliminary denial of accreditation. Uh, and I should just clarify, during this period, we have been receiving Medicare Medicaid funding. Um, then uh, in about three to six months, we expect the Joint Commission to come back and do a total resurvey, um, just like they did in February, of the entire core. And it also happens that Alameda Hospital is going to fall into its window uh, in February. So the entire system um, will be uh, getting ready for survey. That said, uh, although I use the language getting ready for survey, um, one uh, thing that really resonated with me and your opening comments is that um, having just come off service a week ago, I know the quality of care we deliver. Alameda Health System is just not a place where people must come. It is a place that we should be, and our patients and our providers and staff feel is a place where people want to come. So how do we become that organization? We demonstrated some of those key things in our preparation for the resurvey. Our work has just begun. It has not ended. We have to have the humility to recognize opportunity and the courage to lean in and continuously learn and improve. We are on that journey um, and with your guidance, we will remain on that. Keys to that, we must elevate the voice of our frontline staff who have wisdom because they provide care every single day. 
We need to create the structures and processes, and we've been doing that. That's how we've made these improvements around active, active daily management to raise their, our, our frontline staff voices about how, what we can do better and then create leadership processes to quickly respond. These are the foundational principles of high reliability. For us to continue in this work um, that's so deeply um, driven by a mission, um, I think of Daniel Pink's work of master, uh, autonomy, mastery, purpose. Autonomy is trusting people to own their work. Mastery is giving them the skills to be able to do it and purpose is really making sure that every one of our actions, we as leaders infuse with meaning. Um, we've come a long way. That continued success will be on working together um, and, um, and uh, uh, I'm looking forward to working with you very closely in QPSC, uh, but moreover, uh, really um, uh, uh, beginning to continue to move our uh, culture of safety um, and high reliability. Thank you. Thank you, Dr. Hussein. Trustees, any questions of our Chief Quality Officer, Dr. Hussein? Again, I know tonight's a big fire hose, drinking from the fire hose night. So, Ron, I apologize in advance, a little bit more work. Can we do the same request, just the minutes only for this, for this fiscal year to the members of the quality team, Dong, Jensen, Esteen, Banerjee, and Splendorio, so they can have a context, and to the, to the trustees, the minutes are roughly about three pages per, um, uh, so it, 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 we, we want to make it digestible for you. Um, uh, Can I make one brief comment? Of, of course, Trustee Assange. Um, that I really appreciate the presentation and I am relieved that the uh, citations were lifted or, you know, that whatever it is, the, the accreditation issues have been resolved. Um, I apologize, I'm a little under the weather, so my Words aren't coming out clearly, but uh, it's quite concerning that uh, accreditation was at risk. Um, we definitely wanna make sure that our health system is everyone's first choice in Alameda County. Um, and it sounds like there's a, more work than I thought that we were gonna have to do to, to get to that place. So I'm excited to do the work um, and I appreciate the desire to lean in with humility so that we can do that. Thank you for your comments, Trustee Esteem. Trustees, any other comments? Dr. Hussein, thank you again to, oh, actually, uh, Trustee Dong. Um, thank you, Mr. Chair. Um, I just wanna say I echo the comments of Trustee Esteem and would look forward to hearing more from um, Dr. Hussein about how we might sustain the good work that he's done. We, we, we look forward to the continuing dialogues where uh, we will annoy you with funny words like steep and uh, all kinds of other quality discussions. So uh, we really look forward to that. And as I say, if we're not providing quality care here, what the heck are we doing? So we, we have a lot of work in this quality team has partnered with operations to, to, to right the ship uh, in, the, in, the, in, in the face of significant challenge. So. Uh, with that, we'll close out item E2. Doctor, thank you, Dr. Hussein. Going into item three, response to the COVID-19 pandemic. Boy, you can't turn on the news and not hear about this. Uh, you know, um, over 113,000 uh, patients hospitalized with COVID in the United States, um, almost 3,000 deaths per year in the United States. That's basically 9-11. How many people died in 11? 
we're, we're uh, getting approximately 200,000 new diagnoses per year. And we're about to hear uh, from, uh, from our own internal team about some of the things that we're doing here. Uh, a, a remarkable inflection point happened uh, earlier this week with the uh, approval of a vaccine. Look forward to hearing from four listed on here. First, uh, actually in no particular order, but as they're listed, our ch- uh, new trustees, our chief medical officer is Dr. Ghassan Jamaluddin. Hi, Dr. Jamaluddin. Hi. Our, our chief nursing executive is uh, Jan- and, and uh, chief uh, uh, administrative officer for acute care is Janet McKinnis. Janet, are Hi. you in the room? Hi, Janet. Hi. Next uh, listed is Richard Espinoza, who's also a chief administrative officer for post-acute. Hi, Richard. And we have Dr. Paula Barbarea, uh, who's our chief ambulatory officer for ambulatory. Uh, 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 apologies, team. That's who was listed. I know Dr. Swift has also been involved. I'm going to yeah. give you guys the floor. And sorry, and Dr. Tornabene, I see her face, our associate chief medical officer. So sort of like a big team. And uh, so I want to hand it off to you guys to take the lead, if you don't mind walking us through uh, uh, for the public, for our trustees. What, how are we responding to COVID-19? Floor is yours. So I'm going to start, uh, Dr. Bouquet, uh, do, you, do you hear me? Yes, sir. Uh, uh, I will start and then I present uh, the team. Uh, again, I want to, uh, you know, uh, welcome our new trustees. Uh, I was very uh, delighted to hear all your stories uh, of public service, I'm particularly delighted also to have nurses on our board. That's, that's, uh, that's uh, quite uh, amazing. So I am a pulmonary critical care physician, so I deliver care in the system as well, and I receive my uh, care in Alameda Health System. Uh, I'm going to start uh, by uh, trying to share my screen, and then uh, let me see how I can do that. Okay. Do you see my screen now? Good. Okay. So um, as uh, Trustee Bouquet has stated, our number started to increase in the in the county. And uh, trying to see how I can move my slides. I'm sharing the screen. I uh, apologize, but I'm trying to move my slides and I'm unable to move my slides. Let me stop sharing for a second, see how I can do that. So just a note and apologies, Dr. J, if you, uh, it's nine o'clock and I always like to make sure we have a time check. We're going to, we're, we're, uh, I know this is our first meeting, but just if you're not yeah. measuring it, you're not managing it. So it's nine yes. o'clock. So we are going to uh, talk about the Restoration Oversight Committee that uh, has started after we closed the uh, command center. And now we are not in a restoration status. So we are in uh, a really uh, sort of response status. Then we'll talk about the acute care, the ambulatory care, post-acute testing. And that will not take a long uh, period of time. Um, Let me just go to the next slide. Uh, this is a county uh, dashboard that we look at every day, and it has all uh, the information that is happening in the county. As you can see, this is from when we posted the slide. The number continues to increase, and uh, 
we are seeing more around the San Leandro area. And so in our uh, healthcare system, San Leandro uh, has been like probably most impacted by, uh, by the number of cases that we are seeing, but also we are seeing in all our three acute care facility. Uh, with that, I want to give to uh, the floor to Ms. McInnes, who is our chief nursing executive and chief of acute care. So she can talk about the dashboard and how we operate with the dashboard. Janet. Dr. Jamaluddin, thank you. Um, good evening, everyone. So I'll keep this brief. I uh, really just wanted to let everybody know we are very aware of COVID at all time in our hospitals. We uh, touch in at least every two or three hours to make sure that we aren't going up or going down or running out of beds. This is a dashboard uh, that is in real time. This is just an example from a number of days ago. Uh, each hospital is listed with the number of ICU beds. Um, I will give you an update of current status. So currently right now we have uh, 46 inpatients um, uh, with 10 waiting in the uh, Highland ED for uh, bed. So that would be a total of 56 positive COVID uh, with 11 ICU beds in use in the system. So currently Highland has 22 inpatient that are positive with 10 waiting in the ED for admission. San Leandro has 17 and Alameda has seven. Um, and again, 11 ICU beds in the system. So we are okay in terms of ICU beds, um, but we monitor that, that closely. We monitor the number of staff that we have to staff the beds and we monitor uh, the number of vents that are in use. So um, just a snapshot to give you an idea of how we look at this frequently uh, and then touch base with our teams throughout the day and night. Uh, thank you, thank you, uh, thank you, Ms. McInnes. This is the dashboard for our PPE that uh, that is updated regularly, and we look at it for all our PPE. We uh, we have built this dashboard. Our teams have built this dashboard, and uh, we we look at it in a very uh, uh, sorry, in a very on a very regular uh, day. Uh, every day we look at this at this dashboard. Um, I want to move on to the ambulatory. Uh, Palav, are you on? Yep. Just a few minutes uh, or two minutes on ambulatory. How is our... I have a question about the dashboard. Uh, please go ahead. Who is this? Is this uh, Trustee Jensen? Trustee Jensen. Please, Jensen. Trustee Jensen. Yes. Um, with regard to the dashboard, uh, it's on the. Um, it's available to everyone in the system on the Alameda Health System intranet. Is, is that right? It, that's correct, uh, Trustee Jensen. It is on the intranet and it is updated regularly. It's actually taken from, uh, I think, Friday, uh, Friday uh, date. Can you explain, um, and I've actually been looking at it and I get the, I get the um, daily update, um, the Excel chart. It, it, I've noticed that the COVID census um, on the right, the one that's highlighted on the um, slide, it remains green over the past month, even though the numbers, as um, Janet just mentioned, have gone up over the past month from about five inpatients system-wide to almost over 40 now. But it seems like the that COVID census number um, in the in the um, dashboard has stayed green. So I'm just trying to figure out what that actually shows. Uh, so, so uh, this depends on the on our capacity, and this is taken uh, okay, probably so it's last week. I see. Yeah, right. Okay. And uh, uh, we uh, in our current like today uh, we had like in the morning uh, 52 cases, 
but uh, our ICU capacity and our capacity depends on this. I haven't looked at this uh, from today. Sure, that that was that answers my question. It doesn't measure it doesn't measure our um, our utilization. It measures our capacity to to provide care. So that's correct. That's trust, trust, Justin. If I may jump in here real quick, uh, and just to make a slight correction to that. So uh, it, it this is looking at our this is looking at census, not capacity. So you are absolutely correct. This is uh, what, what, what you're seeing here and what we had done originally to create a baseline for us to, to, to track and monitor how we were, you know, if we were experiencing an increase or anything, you know, or a decrease. What we did was we looked at the average uh, number of patients that were being treated and receiving care within our facilities for a period of time. And so we came up with, uh, you know, that, that was for over a period of time of three months. And we came up with an average or that number was 29 patients receiving care. And so that would, that became our baseline. Uh, as of the 8th of December, we hadn't exceeded that average for that weekly period. Now, when you look at the dashboard dated 12-15, which just came out yesterday, we, we you know this is a weekly dashboard, we will notice that our, our percentage increase over baseline has now exceeded that threshold. And so that indicator is red. And then on the center section where you have all the arrows, the utilization commensurate with that increase in census is also indicating red. So this is very specific to census and the number of patients receiving care in our facilities as compared to the baseline over the period of time that we had measured, which was uh, July, which was what we considered to be that second surge that we had experienced earlier this year. So that's what that is indicating, and that's what's referenced in the dashboard. So again, when you look at the dashboard that came out yesterday, it is now reflective of all what we have been experiencing over the last couple of weeks, and that average now has gone over our baseline, and therefore it's red. Thanks, Luis. That um, that really helps me because I was not, I wasn't sure what the baseline was, and I wasn't sure what the measurement was tracking against. So I, I thank you. Thank, thank you, Mr. Fonseca. That's very helpful. All right, let's keep it moving, crew. Hello. Great. Can folks hear me okay? Yeah, great. Dr. Bobber, yeah. Perfect. How are you? I'm hiding out in a bathroom because my young children are asleep in my apartment in the other room. <laughs> I don't want to wake them up. So sorry if the Wi-Fi cuts out a little bit. Um, so, you know, obviously ambulatory is not at the forefront of the hospitalized and most acute COVID presentations that we see in our system, but I think is serving a critical need in two ways. One is obviously serving as overflow and triage so that we help serve patients and hopefully keep unnecessary visits out of our emergency rooms if we can help provide COVID testing, supportive care, um, treatment to COVID relevant diagnoses in the outpatient setting or um, at home via telehealth, as well as obviously taking care of all of the chronic conditions and other medical needs that our patients have and that we know we've seen increased morbidity and mortality from during this entire pandemic. Um, so we have sort of three major pillars of focus. You know, first and foremost is absolutely employee safety. Um, so we want to ensure that every single staff member and provider who show up to work um, to our clinics are kept as safe, that we are following every single CDC guideline, public health guidance, um, and infection prevention measure that we can. So since the start of the pandemic, we've been holding town halls. Initially, they were twice a month. Recently, they've been monthly, although with the recent pandemic, um, recent surge will probably increase them. And so 200 to 300 attendees out of our 400 to 500 employees who are you know, on shift on any given day 
usually attend. We share information, answer questions, share updates from our Restoration Oversight Committee, new protocols. We have sort of instituted our own robust contact tracing process that is in addition and above and beyond, you know, what employee health and infection control do for contact tracing. Um, We obviously try to work, especially with our CAU colleagues, the managers, supervisors, and frontline staff to reinforce masking, social distancing, especially with eating and meal breaks, which have been identified as high risk um, activities within the workplace setting. And then we also instituted with the pandemic, a centralized nurse triage service so that every single patient is screened for COVID symptoms in advance of their clinic visits. Thus allows us an opportunity if the patient is not sick enough you know, to need an ED visit or an urgent care visit to take care of those patients via telehealth, thereby reducing risk of exposure of patients with COVID-like symptoms to our staff and providers. Um, And then if necessary, we can arrange testing for those patients. Um, The other two sort of pillars of our strategy, I think many of the um, trustees who've been here before are, are familiar with, but telehealth Prior to the pandemic, 100% of our care was in-person care. When the shelter-in-place order went into effect in March, we had about 48 to 72 hours to convert entirely to virtual care. So we're currently, you know, out of our telehealth care doing about 90% telephone visits, Um, you know, because of the vulnerable patient population we serve. Many of them don't have access to home internet technology that enables video visits, although some of our clinics are doing video visits, um, especially some of our pioneering group programs. We recently launched Black Centering, um, which Dr. Smith, who I see on this call, has been also a huge champion of from our OBGYN department to reduce uh, maternal morbidity and mortality, especially among our Black patients. And they've had to launch, you know, just by nature of COVID entirely on a virtual platform. And those patients have been doing great with video visits and iPads and sort of video technology that they have at home. Uh, but most of it is by telephone. And then we are still seeing patients in person who have needs that obviously cannot be met by virtual visits. We've also launched an entire virtual care expansion program using lean strategies to try to better in integrate our technology with Epic, use text messaging, use our patient portal, which is called MyCharts, that patients can email us, request refills online um, to really reduce the barriers so our patients can access us whenever they want, however they want, so that their needs and their care is not being delayed. Um, And then obviously chronic disease and preventive care. I think any article you read in the lay press, our HEDIS metrics, they all show that pretty much all preventive care and chronic care has gotten worse over the pandemic. So rates of pediatric vaccinations have gone down, rates of well child visits have gone down, rates of uncontrolled diabetes, high blood pressure have gone up, rates of strokes, heart attacks, you know, essentially everything is getting worse. Um, And so we've also instituted a number of pilots to try to address that. So our patients are telling us they're scared to come in. Um, We've launched curbside and drive-through vaccination clinics at almost all of our sites where we were able to. Um, We're doing, you know, sort of pilots to outreach and close care gaps, mailing fit kits to patients for colon cancer screening so that they don't need to come in and allowing our patients to have as contactless an experience as they desire. Happy to answer any questions if folks have any. I know that was a lot of information. Thank you, Dr. Barbaria. Trustees, any questions on, on, on the ambulatory phase of our, our COVID response? It's, it's been a lot of work for our ambulatory team, so appreciate it to Dr. Barbaria and her team. Thank you. 
Uh, Richard, uh, Mr. Espinoza, can you uh, give us a brief summary about the post-acute? How are we doing? Sure, thank you. Um, well, good evening, trustees. Um, as you all are aware, congreg congregate settings and nursing homes have been highly affected and, uh, in a large segment. Um, that has been affected by COVID. And so our teams have done a remarkable job. We work closely with CDPH and public health, and we've implemented a lot of mitigation strategies um, in that collaboration. Um, we are testing all of our employees and all of our post-acute sites on a weekly basis. Um, this is for us to be able to identify any cases that come into the facility so we can make sure that we're assisting our employees. Um, if we do see a positive case with either a resident or an employee um, based on current regulations or recent regulations that change, um, it used to be considered an outbreak. So one positive case, an outbreak, triggering testing of all residents of the facility as well as all employees until two rounds of testing um, result in no new positive results. So all that data is reported on a daily basis to CDPH public health, we work very closely with them um, and working with families as well in, in terms of, we've been doing a lot of um, work with uh, iPads and things of that nature for we've been trying to keep our residents and staff safe, keep our community safe, but make sure that we're uh, addressing the psychosocial needs of our residents. Um, the SNFs have a requirement for all new admissions that COVID screening occur on day one as well as day 14. And so that way uh, we can identify if we are admitting any residents that may be in a, um, a period of incubation for COVID. Um, and we have different sections of, of our SNFs. We have green zones, yellow zones, and red zones. Red zones for positive COVID cases, yellow where this quarantine population sits for that 14-day period. And then once they're cleared, uh, they move into the green zone, which have been tested and, and do not have any um, COVID. As I had mentioned, our post-acute leaders um, have data that they are required to report to CDPH and public health on a daily basis, seven days a week. Um, and our teams have done a remarkable job. Um, for the last 10 months, we've had a total of four positive residents, which is pretty remarkable based on the numbers that we've been seeing throughout the nation. Two of those were um, asymptomatic and two had some mild symptoms. Um, we also are heavily regulated by CDPH where they're, they're performing infection control surveys every six to eight weeks of every sniff. And we've had over 10 inspections of all four of our locations, all with no findings, um, with 100% compliance, um, which has been pretty remarkable, as well as the public uh, uh, CDPH and public health has asked for our support in helping community sniffs that have outbreaks to see where we can identify areas to uh, help them as well. Uh, we recently worked with the county, CDPH, and public health to open what we call the CQU, our COVID quarantine unit, um, which is one of the first so that we can help with throughput in the acute hospitals so that we don't see surges, uh, especially now with uh, COVID and flu, where they can be placed in our COVID unit if they're positive or in that quarantine period. We can quarantine them for 14s and follow the positive um, length of uh, course of infection for the red zone, and then we can transfer it into SNFs in the community. So it's really helping our uh, community hospitals as well as our community. 
Uh, and then lastly, uh, I, I will mention that our three Alameda uh, sites were recognized by Newsweek last year and this year with a part of that being um, COVID-19 response based on data reported to CDPH Public Health. Um, the Fairmont facility would have also been recognized, I believe, that uh, Newsweek was looking at facilities that are 150 beds and larger, but uh, Fairmont uh, has also done a remarkable job as well. Happy to take any questions. Thank you. Thank you, Mr. Espinosa. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Mr. Espinosa. Uh, so testing, uh, I want to ask Dr. Tornabin to uh, talk to us where we are in testing and see if we have any questions. This has been really very, uh, you know, challenging uh, task and, uh, and problem, but we are in a much better place. Uh, Dr. Tornabin, are you on uh, Zoom? I cannot see you. Yes, I I'm here. Thank okay. you. Hi, good Great. evening, trustees. Um, I'm Felicia Tornabeni. I'm the Associate Chief Medical Officer. Our testing journey across AHS has been exciting. Um, like uh, Dr. Bavaria indicated, it also um, helped us channel the spirit of innovation at, at AHS. So starting first with, um, there's three groups um, that we've really been working on testing. Number one, of course, were our, our AHS patients. Uh, we started uh, testing last March, April with partnership front with the Alameda County Public Health Lab. By June, we had an uh, internal instrument at the Highland campus, the Hologic. Um, and then we've recently expanded our high capacity um, testing uh, for COVID to our Alameda Hospital Lab. So over the course, um, uh, over the course of the past year, uh, we started testing symptomatic uh, patients um, uh, on an inpatient basis, and then we soon spread to include uh, ED patients and outpatients in a drive-through uh, uh, testing site. We had a testing site at San Leandro. We ultimately ended up uh, closing that and focused on our Highland site. However, we're currently in the development phases of adding in some COVID testing for our ambulatory patients again. And then, of course, as Mr. Espinoza said, we do uh, uh, frequent testing of our post-acute patients. In terms of the community, we have a partnership with Alameda County Public Health Department, where on October 27th, we started a drive-up, walk-up community testing site at the Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center by Lake Merritt here in Oakland. Um, we, as of uh, just this evening, I checked our, our portal and we're up at almost 5,500 um, patients and, and community members that we've tested. It's an incredible effort and we understand that there was a resolution yesterday at the Board of Supervisors to keep um, the community testing sites open. So we hope to continue um, operating our Henry J. Kaiser site um, into 2021. And then AHS staff. We started with a process uh, where our AHS staff who were symptomatic or had a high risk exposure, we certainly wanted them to go through our employee health department. Um, we, for staff who could not get testing through their primary care providers, we offered them testing through our urgent care. For our post-acute staff, as Mr. Espinoza also described, um, those staff are frequently tested. And then we are working on broadening our um, availability of testing of AHS acute care staff. That'll be coming in, in the next few weeks. We have a, we're, we have a partnership with Fulgent Genetics, um, which is a laboratory. We already have that partnership, but we're broadening that in order to make the testing more available to our acute care staff. 
Thank you, Dr. Tornabin. Any Thank question? You. Can I ask a quick question? Um, for the inpatients who are symptomatic, um, and I know that uh, I am happy to see the universal screening that's happening with the transfer patients who come in with higher accuracy from others. Usually, do they do a test before transfer from their uh, discharge facility? Do they do it when they come in? And if they're asymptomatic, any transfer patient, are they screened or are they tested? So um, we, if, if somebody had been symptomatic, irrespective of their... Um, where they were coming from, we would have made them a person under investigation, and they either would have had a known uh, result um, or uh, would be tested, and the patient would be, we would place the patient in appropriate isolation precautions, um, and that patient would be tested. As of uh, Tuesday, uh, yesterday, uh, we are testing all patients coming in to any acute care facility. Um, those, uh, we use the term persons undergoing asymptomatic testing. And so while those patients might not be in the elevated isolation precautions, they will be tested. The one group that will be tested uh, potentially a few days prior are our preoperative elective surgeries. And so for those patients who perhaps and for an elective surgery and then would be admitted afterwards, they will have undergone their testing in a, the few days before their surgery. And to jump on to the trustees, I mean, this move is a huge move for the organization. Uh, so kudos to the operational rollout with, with lab and, and the like to test all inpatients is something which is, is a landscape changer. So thank you, uh, you know, uh, these are heavy lifts. <clears throat> Can I ask a question? Is there a plan for testing all staff in the same way? So, uh, Trustee, thank you. Um, that is the, the broadening of availability that we are working on. Um, we will have, uh, the plan is to have two testing days available uh, at uh, the Highland Campus, one at Alameda Hospital, one at John George, and one at San Leandro. Yeah. Um, uh, staff can access any of those um, testing sites and we will have a certain number of appointments per day and our staff can register for specific appointments um, uh, during those days. And that's symptomatic or asymptomatic? So if, if, our, if our staff are symptomatic, then those are actually not the staff we would want to come to those um, areas because we don't want to be mixing symptomatic staff in that screening uh, group. And so for anyone who's symptomatic, then we would want to use our existing pathway, which is either that staff member's um, primary care physician, or we will see them through our urgent care. And so the other screening, uh, which is the one that we're expanding, that will be for asymptomatic staff, because that's where we don't want those two populations mixing. Right, yeah. they're coming on site. It's not a drive-through or anything like that. That's correct, yeah. Trustee Dong. I'm sorry, may I ask a question? Um, are you planning to test employees at clinics? So uh, right now, we, we have that capacity right now um, by having any staff member, irrespective of where um, they work across AHS. Our Henry J. Kaiser Convention Center is certainly open uh, for all of our staff. And that has been the principle, certainly from the beginning. The, uh, the expansion of the acute care, staff, acute care staff is in response to the recent AFL, um, which asks specifically for more available testing for acute care staff. Thank you. 
Yeah, Thank we, we submitted a plan uh, to CDPH about the AFL. It was required to be submitted on the 14th, uh, but uh, it is not mandated. It is uh, encouraged and it's made uh, accessible to all our staff. So I Thank can you. move on, I guess, to the, let me try to do that, to the next uh, slide, which is the vaccine. So as uh, we know, the Pfizer vaccine received an uh, emergency utilization authorization last week, and it has shipped to various places in the United States. It consists of two doses, 21 days apart, given intramuscularly. It's preserved at minus 70 to minus 80 degrees. We have not received our batch. We are expecting to receive it on Friday. Um, uh, uh, Doctors Mini Swift uh, will talk a little bit about the logistic. Now, the Moderna vaccine is going under uh, uh, vetting tomorrow by the FDA, and it is expected to receive also an EUA. Uh, it consists of two doses, 28 days apart, and it is preserved at uh, 2 to 8 uh, degrees, uh, doesn't need deep freezing. And there are other vaccines in the pipelines, but uh, these are like the two uh, most uh, uh, used vaccines that are going to be uh, used. Uh, I want to uh, introduce uh, Dr. Mini Swift, who is the VP of Population Health, who is going to talk to us a little bit more about the vaccination planning and answer any question related to the vaccine. Uh, uh, Mini, are you, are you on? Yes, Please. I am. Please yes, take am. it from here. Good evening. Um, I'm really excited to give you an update about our plan for vaccination. Um, we are all filled with so much in, uh, excitement and hope for the potential for a brighter future with this path forward brought by um, the, these two new vaccines. Um, so first, I'll just give you an overview of the approach that we are being asked to um, to use. So here in the United States, the COVID-19 vaccination program will require a phased approach. Um, the phase the the program has been divided into three phases: phase one, phase two, and phase three. Phase one is described as these this initial phase where there will be uh, limited doses of vaccine available as um, our as the manufacturers ramp up. Um, there'll, there'll be a tight focus on end-to-end -end administration, documentation, and that chain of custody for the vaccine at every stage um, from the time it leaves the manufacturer to the point in which it is injected. Um, the, the vaccine will be administered in closed settings where it's best suited for reaching the initial critical populations. Um, this phase one has been divided into two sub-phases, um, phase 1A and phase 1B. We are currently in phase 1A. The focus of phase 1A is on two populations. One, our most vulnerable populations of patients. Those are uh, the patients that are being treated by Mr. Espinosa in our post-acute settings. Um, and then in other settings, uh, other congregate settings like jails or, or shelters. Um, but for AHS, this primarily means our post-acute setting. The other population that we are supposed to be focusing on is our um, health, our workforce in healthcare, and especially the workforce and the services that are required in our response to the COVID pandemic. We. Um, 
this here you can see on the slide our work is divided into these various categories pharmacy vaccine acquisition storage and distribution the prioritization of these uh, people in phase 1a uh, the operation of the vaccination for those um, two patient two populations of course um, reporting is a big activity for us education and communications um, one of the challenges with this uh, program is that um, not all of the information has been available all at the same time. We were initially um, told that we were going to get 975 doses. Um, last Friday, we were absolutely delighted to learn that we are actually getting triple that amount. Uh, the first shipment of approximately 3,000 doses of the Pfizer vaccine is scheduled to arrive at the Highland campus sometime this Friday. Um, that will mean that we will have enough for uh, vaccine for um, any AHS staff who wishes, wishes to be vaccinated. Um, and I say this because Pfizer is going to start this week. We've been told that we will receive Moderna next week. Um, we are not in, we don't do the ordering ourselves. That's done. The ordering and allocation is done by the county. So we don't yet know how much vaccine we are going to get from Moderna when it may arrive or well, whether it'll be contingent upon us um, using all of these Pfizer doses. But the super exciting news is that we are going to get 3,000 doses. That's about three of those uh, trays, those pizza tray, like the size trays that you may have been hearing about. Um, and we will be using this time to, you, we will use those trays for our employees um, because of the um, just wonderful forecasting by Mr. Espinosa, um, our patients in post-acute will be served um, by Walgreens. So we have this two-pronged strategy to be able to vaccinate as many people as we can in tier 1A. We further divided tier 1A into three waves. Um, and you, um, this starts to get pretty complicated, but basically the point is in wave A, we will vaccinate all of our inpatient um, and acute sites. So wave A is defined as frontline facing staff who are prolonged, repeated direct or indirect exposure to patients, infected materials, or who are essential to the COVID-19 uh, uh, response. So this includes um, our acute services, emergency departments, John George, John George PES, post-acute, uh, post urgent care, labor and delivery, all of our perioperative um, and procedural services. Wave B will be um, more frontline patient-facing clinical and support staff who provide patient care with some risk of occupational exposure to COVID-19 and um, also essential to patient care services. And these are most of the services that report to Dr. Barbaria as a, and in addition to some of our lab personnel who may not be included in wave A. And in wave C, we will be moving on to vaccinate all of our non-patient-facing staff and all of our other um, departments. So um, how are we going to approach vaccinating our employees? Um, we are, um, I think one of the key things to understand is that this um, COVID vaccination process is very different than traditional flu vaccination process. Um, and it's different in four ways. There are strict temperature control requirements. We must keep the, vac the Pfizer vaccine at Antarctic level um, temperatures. And um, each step of the way, we need to have tight controls around um, the types of um, 
storage units we're using, like a sub-zero freezer, um, and the timing in which we have when we take it out. So when we take it out of that freezer um, and we want to transfer it to some other modality, we have 60 seconds to make that transfer. Otherwise, if it starts to defrost, we need to use that vial within six hours. So one, the strict temperature controls of this vaccine make it very different than flu and um, pose some logistical challenges. Two, there are mandated rules that govern the chain of custody for COVID-19 for this vaccine. So we need to document every step that that vaccine or vial is taking um, and report a daily inventory to the county so because they want to track how we're using it, our, our rate of utilization, um, as well as where it's going in our system. On top of these two constraints, there's the constraint of the pandemic. COVID-19 requirements uh, require us to physically distance the day of the uh, clinic appointment. So we can't just, so we can't take this vaccine on a cart and take it up to the floors. And we certainly can't, you know, have our employees um, being vaccinated in close proximity or together. And so that makes drop into these clinics virtually impossible. And lastly, we need to stagger the uh, vaccine recipients because we need to observe them for at least 15 minutes, sometimes 30 after uh, the delivery of the vaccine because of the potential for the anaphylactic reactions. This week, we're waiting as we wait for the um, for the vaccine to arrive. We're uh, in the final stages of creating plans to stand up uh, multiple vaccine clinics for our staff. Our goal, based on what we know today, is to have multiple uh, sites. We will start at Highland because um, that is where the vaccine is arriving. We don't know what time it is um, going to arrive, but we will try to stand up a clinic as long as it comes within a reasonable time. Um, starting next week, probably beginning um, Tuesday, we will start drilling at our other sites, San Leandro, Alameda, um, John George and potentially Fairmont. And then on Wednesday, we hope to be operational at all of our sites. Um, just a few facts. In first, uh, in phase one, there are approximately um, 4,000 employees who meet this criteria. In phase two, um, that goes down to about 800, and then there are another 1,000 uh, uh, staff members who meet the criteria for phase three. Um, and with That's that, good. I'll stop. Thank you for that report. and. Uh... You know, to the trustees, I know this just on a couple of slides, but there are literally tens of hours of work behind all this. This is um, a logistical challenge of gargantuan proportions, so really appreciate it. I think what I say to the trustees and to the public is that, that uh, the, the advent of this vaccine, uh, you know, prior estimates on vaccine development were four years. Uh, this uh, pharma was able to execute this in less than a year, that's amazing. I'd argue that this is uh, right now the most important uh, in to date, the most important inflection point we've had in the fight against um, COVID-19, but it doesn't exclude our other weapons in our arsenal, which are still social distancing, hand washing and masking. That does not exclude all those things as we, as we have our public face on this. And I think it's gonna be incumbent upon us to, to dispel uh, many of the myths about the safety profile on this. Uh, it, is, it is thought to be a very safe drug with about a 95% efficacy for the Pfizer and 94.5% for the Moderna. So we're, we're going to model 
what 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 we want for our community. And I applaud um, uh, this entire team who's launched, uh, who's going to be launching this. So to clarify, we expect Injection One to be launching next Wednesday. We hope there'll be some press. <laughs> it's Friday, hopefully. It's actually Friday. We're going to launch on Friday. Oh, first um, if, Friday. As long as it first injections will take place on Friday, as long as it arrives sometime before, you know, early afternoon. We will do everything we can to get started as soon as it arrives. Yeah, and and the safety of our staff and our patients is uh, without uh, without equivocation the most important thing for us. So, really, this is this was big work. I really appreciate this team. Trustees, any? Comments or questions before we move on to the next item. Thank you to all of you. I have a question. Uh, Trustee Jensen. It is immunity conferred with the first, uh, the first injection. It's with the second, Trustee Jensen. Uh, it is uh, they measured the antibody. It happens after the second injection, mm -hmm. so it needs two injections. So we estimate about six weeks to confirm to, to confer. Uh, from from injection one, about six weeks to develop the uh, antibody levels at what, what is estimated to provide maximum protection. But reportedly, after first injection, I think you get about a thirty to sixty percent reduction in severe disease or something to that effect. Okay. Trustees, uh, I any had questions. Oh, uh, mm -hmm. trustee, was that trustee Banerjee? I don't see trustee Banerjee. Yes, um, I did have a. Oh, um, we, with the communications, are we doing any kind of like specific uh, targeted uh, intentional outreach to patients and staff of color who might have, you know, uh, um, justified distrust of um, vaccines and in the past uh, and might might need to be and uh, need an extra level of um, assurance about the safety of this? So yeah, uh, we have done a survey uh, that uh, that addresses all uh, like the staff. We had until midday today about 1,600 response to uh, address all these questions, and we are working with the PACE team specifically about uh, the mistrust uh, of uh, of the people uh, about about the, the vaccine. Uh, I don't know if Dr. Swift wants to comment uh, about the survey. We can share it on future meeting as well. I'll just say that equity is a key uh, principle for um, this program. Um, and so that is why we wanted to launch that survey early to understand. Um, one, it would help us plan to understand what the level of interest was and two we've collected specific information to try to help us um, figure out um, how to begin those conversations with um, populations of patients who may or and staff who may have some concerns we've also been collaborating with the county they are very interested in um, launching their own survey so we had a meeting yesterday to collaborate to so that we can partner together in improving confidence and uh, access to the vaccine. Excellent. Hi, Terry. Well, I, I want to say is that, uh, you know, this pandemic has been like extremely like isolating us and impinging on our, uh, on our freedom. It has put masks on our face, but it also unmasked a lot about our health care inequity in its outcome. And, uh, and that's, you know, that's a very, very important uh, Thing that uh, 
I, I just want to share very quickly a story of a patient who doesn't have COVID, but who lives alone at the age of 72. And I, I see this patient for chronic lung disease. But his problem has been very, very irritable. I couldn't understand why. Then I discovered he had cataract and he lives alone and he is isolated. So we were able to get him here and do the cataract surgery and his life had changed because he can see. So there is really a lot of uh, sort of uh, injustice that is happening right now in paralyzing us as health system to care uh, for, uh, for, for, for our patients who need, uh, who need care and also to fight this epidemic. Um, uh, Terry, I saw, would you mind introducing yourself, Terry, uh, to the new trustees and give us a 30 second bullet point on our communication strategy? Well, I'll give you 15, so welcome trustees. I think I know many of you, I've uh, worked with you previously. Hi, Jeanette, good to see you. Um, in terms of, um, Trustee Banerjee, your question about reaching out to uh, populations that have some concern about previous engagement with, with healthcare systems and the like, I think we will be pushing out ongoing messages about the um, safety of the vaccine. We want to make sure that when we begin to really um, do some uh, intensive outreach to those groups is when the vaccines are actually available for them to get it. The last thing we want to do is get them excited about getting it and then tell them to wait several months and get in line. We are certainly thinking about how we want to do that, and that's part of our outreach plan and communications moving forward. So, so thank you to all all uh, the partners, uh, internal and also external, on the launch of this. And all uh, on behalf of uh, uh, this organization, we're committed to the utility of this very critical weapon in the fight against COVID. So, thank you to everyone. That's uh, this is. The board looks forward to more, more commentary on where we've gone. So with that, I'll close item E3. E4, um, uh, th this is governance discussions with the county. Uh, it, it, is a, uh, it, it is a gargantuan topic and we're not gonna necessarily approach it in gargantuan technique right now, given the hour. I know this is our fir first meeting. I'll, I'll, I'll preface this before I open it up to the trustees by saying uh, questions of governance uh, have uh, have come from all stakeholders, and and just to illustrate them, uh, certainly from our from our 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 union partners here, our internal stakeholders, uh, certainly from our board of supervisors, our 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 so-called external stakeholders, and I'll, I'll review uh, uh, one element of a letter which was sent to us by President Valle. But I want everyone to know that even this 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 board of trustees uh, in in uh, the prior version. We have also raised questions of governance, uh, this. I think this is a question which is addressed by all stakeholders. And I think it is our commitment of this new board of trustees to navigate that, th those dialogues. I'm gonna read uh, 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 an excerpt from uh, President Valle's uh, and, and, and Supervisor Chan's letter dated, uh, I can't remember the exact date, in October to the board of trustees, uh, the prior board of trustees. The Board of Supervisors has begun a process towards governance reform. We are currently examining various governance models and the legal and legislative ramifications of any proposed changes. We have a number of concrete goals in mind, including improving the direct accountability of the CEO and the executive leadership team to the Board of Trustees for operational and financial progress, implementing a collaborative approach to working with employees and key partners, including labor organizations and the healthcare services agency, 
and full transparency by the AHS administration about problems facing the system. The end goal, of course, is improve patient care and the long-term fiscal viability of the system. We expect to meet with stakeholders early in December or January and have a recommendation on government's change no later than March 2021. Boy, is that a, a, is that a heavy task and it's a build, but I, 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 I personally like to start with, with areas of congruence and, and, and agree, agreement. I think all parties, everyone who comes to, the, to, to this table and has this discussion is, improved, is, is concerned with improving patient care and the long-term fiscal viability of the system. Uh, I think we're, we're, we're all poised to, to have that discussion. And then the trick is how do we have that in a, in a trustful and an open manner where we can, where we can bring our issues to the table uh, and, and, and find and navigate uh, these, these uh, challenging waters to get us to where we need to be. And I, I, I can say, I, I certainly don't know the answer. Uh, I, I'm gonna reference trustee Dong who previously in the committee discussion talked about an ad hoc committee for the governance discussion. I think that will probably be very appropriate as one product here, but I wanna open up and give trustees opportunity for comment on this section with note that it is 9.43 PM and we do have uh, at least probably about 30 minutes of closed uh, if I'm being ideal and I wanna be attentive to everyone's fatigue first meeting. So I'll open up the floor to any trustees on this issue governance. Mr. Chair. Yes, ma'am, trustee Dong, please. Real quick, um, I'm glad we are having this brief discussion regarding governance. I believe um, my discussion around a task force or temporary committee um, of the trustees, I'd love to be able to work uh, with all stakeholders, including the county in a proactive manner and to be a step ahead and not to be in a reactive mm -hmm. um, in a reactive situation. I would love to see us kind of bring forth also some of our own ideas if we have them, but also to understand what all of our stakeholders are interested <coughs> in terms of governance. Trustee Thank you. Don, could, could I interpret that as you being interested in participating in such an ad hoc committee? Yes, yes, Dr. Phuket. Yes, ma'am. Trustee Esteen. And then Trustee Banerjee. Now I'm worried that if I speak, I'll end up on another committee. <laughs> I think that as we discuss governance, I'm going to get you. Right. I think that as we discuss governance, um, Trustee Dong, I agree with you completely that we have to be able to consider everything that uh, this board is consisted of, including the origin of it, the permanent agreement. I think we have to go very deep into how we construct the governance because the foundation is what we will uh, begin with every single day. So, you know, from the, the creating meetings on a steady Wednesday instead of this like hopscotch all over the month, I think is kind of a good model for streamlining. And um, I don't know that this governance change process is gonna be a streamlined process. We have a, a lofty goal to complete this task uh, in a short period of time. Um, but I think we have a lot of work to do and we need to be extremely open to full change. 
Yes, ma'am. Op open mind. So I'm going to hold on uh, uh, assigning. So yes, trustee, the scene. So yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll hold on. Trustee Banerjee. So um, as someone who's been here for some time for at least two, two and a half years, I think two years, um, there are, uh, you know, our board has been uh, bringing up the um, idea of uh, governance restructure consistently with the Board of Supervisors too, and we have uh, have planned joint working groups and things which, you know, uh, we've had joint meetings, but that kind of working group did not uh, come into fruition. But the Wifley report that I, I referred to, which was done um, in January of 2020, we um, are in 2019, this group uh, uh, interviewed a whole bunch of internal and external stakeholders, including our supervisors, including leadership here, other stakeholders, staff, uh, about partnership and collaboration between the county and AHS. And so we have a set of recommendations, really robust ones that we've done. And then also in May, we had a listening session uh, as part of our retreat to look at like what options should be explored so that AHS can continue to provide the kind of essential services without interruption, Where, what kind of structure do we need to resource the work that we do. So uh, the good thing is that everyone really wants AHS to succeed. Everyone, whether you speak to the supervisor or us, are on the same page in in what we need to do. This will be an expedited um, process, but a very timely time to reset. And like you said, Rusty Estine, address some of the structural foundational things as well so that whoever the next um, leadership team is, uh, we, set every, we, we are set up for success. Thank you, Trustee Banerjee. Any other comments from any of the other trustees? I would just like to comment that um, in addition, I, I completely agree with all of the sentiments. And I, as you know, um, the board members who I've been serving with know that I feel strongly that governance has been an area that's been lacking in this board. And that's um, one of the reasons why we um, didn't meet the expectations of the board of supervisors. So I am in complete agreement with the establishment of an ad hoc committee. Um, but I would also suggest and point out that we are, um, there's another issue that we're going to have to address perhaps even sooner before a governance committee, and that is to establish a methodology and a committee to develop a process and hire an, at least an interim CEO, which is our main primary goal as a board. Absolutely, Trustee Jensen, and I think we'll that, that will certainly be on, on this board's uh, uh, plate for, for, for at least before we leave tonight. So with regard to governance, I'm actually, I, I'm going to announce that we will have an ad hoc committee to address this. I'm actually, uh, apparently the, uh, the, the policy and procedures allow me some latitude. I don't think that has to happen now. I do want trustees to think about it because, I mean, conservatively, we're probably talking, you know, I was doing a lot of math, but you probably got about 30 to 40 hours of time ahead of you to do this kind of work. And That's I, right. And I, and I don't want people to have to do this right now. We will announce this ultimately at our next meeting who that committee was, but I want, I want people to be attentive of, of the time investment. This is going to be a huge lift. 
and I'm not trying to intimidate anyone around this. I just want us to be pragmatic and realistic. Um, and uh, it is my intent to participate on this committee. And uh, I look forward in, in separate discussions uh, for anyone else who might be interested. So, so um, yes, sir. Just if I could just chime in, you know, just with a quick update. So, you know, I think that you're going to find that the timeline is a little bit different than what was, you know, the tentative timeline had placed, you know, a lot of this work being done in terms of outreach by the county in the uh, December, January timeframe, and then a decision being made by March. Um, you know, recently, it's my understanding that the county has engaged an outside consultant who's going to be uh, doing some uh, or facilitating some of that work, you know, over the course of the next couple of months. Uh, so they'll be meeting, you know, with organizations, you know, you know, all of the stakeholders, you know, so Alameda Alliance, you know, FPs, uh, you know, labor unions, you know, the whole gamut, including, you know, uh, you know, members of the board of trustees, former board of trustees, you know, members of staff, former members of staff. Um, and that group is going to be, or that consultant is going to be reporting back to the county sometime in June on their findings from all of that outreach. So, sure. you know, I think that what you'll be looking at is a slightly longer timeline over which this will be conducted uh, and not quite so compact, but I think it will also, you know, perhaps provide additional opportunities, um, you know, facilitate, you know, doing what a trustee you know, Dong indicated in terms of, you know, figuring out, you know, how you all are going to organize and then participate in this. Uh, uh, Council Moy, I thank you for that commentary. I guess my comment was, uh, uh, thank you for that. I, I, with the deepest respect to President Baye and Supervisor Chan, March is extremely ambitious. And, and uh, we, 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 we want to set a smart objective, right? Specific, measurable, achievable, relevant, and time-related uh, and uh, I, I think part of this ad hoc committee will be to have a, a, a balanced discussion with them about the reality of the time frame. I think March sounds very ambitious, but that'll be part of the charge. Trustee Esteen. Yeah, I think that while we undertake this governance issue, it's also extremely important that we prioritize closing contracts and getting okay. labor yes. peace. We, yes. we do not need to have any risk of any more work stoppages or, you know, unanticipated expenses because labor negotiations are being prolonged. Uh, I know we're gonna get to that in closed session in a moment, but we absolutely need to prioritize labor peace. Yes. And uh, so the HR committee, uh, trustees Jensen, Blue, uh, Dong and yourself also have, have an immediate charge on your first meeting. So uh, very, very much appreciated. So so I'm, I will announce that there will be an ad hoc governance committee on, uh, on 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 this issue um, with with uh, the population of that committee to be reported at, at the next meeting. Uh, uh, they'll probably be doing some interim work, which will include the outreach to our board of supervisor colleagues on timelining. Uh, I think we're we're going to project it. We'll be projecting a retreat. I think it was maybe we're projecting April. So, uh, Council Moy, you telling me that that June might be more realistic realistic gives makes me feel like we have a little bit more wiggle room, which I think we need. So thank you for that. Um, uh, President Buquette, this is Louisa. Um, can you hear me? Yeah. Okay. My picture's splashing. So I wanted to know who is the consultant that has been hired to help us through this process? And will we have an opportunity to meet that individual? 
Yeah, you know, there was a contract uh, that you know went before the Board of Supervisors to engage Health Management Associates (HMA), um, and the time frame of the contract was, uh, I want to say, December 15th through uh, the end of June. And you know, as part of what they had indicated there, they had sort of, or part of the scope of that called for essentially uh, as a minimum uh, interactions with uh, former board of trustee members, AHS management, consumers, consumer uh, patients, uh, the Alameda Contra Costa Medical Association or East Bay Medical Group, the Hospital Council, FQHC. So there's a number of organizations that, you know, the consultant will be reaching out to um, in order to report back to the county on the issues that the county identified. Point of clarification, you didn't mention current trustees. I, well, what I said, uh, let me just go back here. What it says is former BOT members. I'm just reading from what was in uh, the uh, scope of services there. So that's, and that's sort of what I was saying in terms of, you know, getting together with them to understand, you know, how that's all going to play out. So, so Trustee Steen, that was a, a astute observation, and then to Trustee Blue, I think it's a good question. I, I would I would assert that 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 uh, uh, action number one for the ad hoc committee is the outreach to find out where where, where there there is common work and how we can be co-participant rather than doing a uh, rather than doing something in parallel you know, hiring our own consulting firm. Let's 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 work together so we don't have to be giving reports on that. Does that sound okay? Yes. Trustee Esteem, yes. Trustee. No. Mr. Okay. Chair. Yes, yes ma'am. Uh, yes, I just wanna, I noticed that Vanessa Sedeno from Supervisor Chan's office has her hand up. Perhaps she can provide okay. some information. How do you see a hand up? In the Vanessa? chat. On the participant side of things, if you keep that bar open. I'm still a uh, Zoom moron. So, um, uh, uh, Ms. Cedeno, do you have a comment? Um, I was just going to provide a little bit of information. Mike covered it, a lot of it, um, recapping the, the question around uh, the consultant retained. Specifically, we are working with Jonathan Freeman and his colleague, Ethan um, at Health Management Associates, um, we did have, we are planning to have an additional meeting um, internally of the county to go through the list of ex external stakeholders for the interviews as part of this process. Um, current trustees are on that list right now. It's still being finalized. Obviously, there are a lot of former and current trustees, so we're just trying to figure out how to do that. Um, and we and we hope to have more information and details around um, that for you soon. Thanks, Mr. Dano. That's a, a very helpful update. And let us say that, that we will make it our outreach to, to extend our hand and partner with you rather than asking you to come to us. We'll, we'll come to you. Is that okay? Okay. Oh, um, sh yeah. Short, uh, short trustee Bouquet, um, uh, but definitely as part of the contract with um, H um, HMA, um, they will be doing some stakeholder interviews as part of that as well. Yeah. Excellent. Thank you. Appreciate it. So uh, barring any other comment, actually, I want to give trustees room. It is, uh, uh, it is now 957. Um, uh, any other comments on item E4? Okay. With that, we'll close out item E4.
Um, uh, uh, closed session is next. Uh, to the audience, uh, you know, I can imagine it stinks just to sit there and wonder when we're going to come come back. We have some big things to talk about. I'm going to estimate we're. Uh, I'm going to say 30 minutes, but that's probably a gross undershoot. I, I'm going to say we're probably going to be there at least 45 minutes because we have some big things to hear about. So. Um, uh, we, we will re be reporting if there are any actions taken in that. So you can wait if you want, but we're going to be in closed session for another 45, and I know it's late. Um, council? Yeah, so we're uh, meeting in closed session uh, for a conference with labor negotiators under the government, and then a public employment discussion uh, for a vacant position under the government code as well, too. So if you just hold then I'll open up the breakout room and um, we can get this started.